We'll hear argument first this morning in case 22-506, Biden versus Nebraska. General Prelager. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. COVID-19 is the most devastating pandemic in our nation's history, and it has caused enormous disruption and economic distress. Over the past three years, millions of Americans have struggled to pay rent, utilities, food, and many have been unable to pay their debts. To head off immediate harm for student loan borrowers, two secretaries across two administrations invoked the HEROES Act to suspend interest and payment obligations for all Americans with federally held loans. But if that forbearance ends without further relief, it's undisputed that defaults and delinquencies will surge above pre-pandemic levels. So Secretary Cardona again invoked the HEROES Act to provide a measure of loan forgiveness to ensure that this unprecedented pandemic does not leave borrowers worse off in relation to their student loans. The states ask this court to deny that vital relief to millions of Americans, but they lack standing to seek that result. They principally assert harm to a separate legal person, Mohila, that could sue in its own name but has chosen not to do so, and the state's asserted harms to their tax revenues are self-inflicted and indirect. The state's bare disagreement with this policy is not the sort of concrete injury that Article Three demands. On the merits, the states say the Act doesn't authorize the Secretary to ever forgive loan principal. But the Secretary's interpretation of this text is not just a plausible reading, it's the best reading. Congress expressly authorized the Secretary to waive or modify any Title IV provision in emergencies to provide financial relief to borrowers. Loan forgiveness is a paradigmatic form of debt relief, and the Secretary acted within the heartland of his authority and in line with the central purpose of the HEROES Act in providing that relief here. To apply the major questions doctrine to override that clear text would deny borrowers critical relief that Congress authorized and the Secretary deemed essential. I welcome the Court's questions. Uh, General, is this a waiver or is it a modification? It's both a waiver and a modification, Justice Thomas. This appears at JA 261. That was the decision document that the Secretary signed where he said, I hereby issue waivers and modifications of multiple provisions under Title IV of the Student Loan Program. And then that language was repeated in the Federal Register notice that actually implemented that program and constitutes the final agency action that the states are challenging here. Well, could you explain then, in, in, in other provisions, uh, there is express language as to cancellation. And, of course, there is it here. Uh, so would you take a minute to explain how a waiver or modification amounts to a waiver, to a cancellation? Of course. So the Secretary identified various provisions in Title IV that govern the terms and conditions of student loans and also govern discharge and cancellation and other circumstances, as your question suggested. And I think the straightforward way to think about how the verbs map on to the Secretary's action is that he waived elements of those provisions that contain eligibility requirements for discharge and cancellation that are inapplicable under this program, and then modified the provisions to contain the limitations that he had announced as part and 
parcel of announcing this loan forgiveness. Now, you had suggested that there's no express statement in the HEROES Act to discharge loan principal, and, and that's true. But the relevant and operative language here is the provision that says the Secretary is empowered to waive or modify any Title IV provision. And so the HEROES Act isn't enumerating any of the various forms of relief that have long been authorized and implemented under this statute. I don't think anything can be read into the fact that there's no express reference to particular forms of relief because Congress was trying to broadly cover the field and ensure that the Secretary had the tools to respond to the national emergency with whatever relief might be necessitated. But um, in in an opinion we had a few years ago uh, by Justice Scalia, he talked about what what the word modify means. And uh, he said modified, in our view, connotes moderate change. He said it might be good English to say that the French Revolution modified the status of the French nobility, but only because there's a figure of speech called understatement and a literary device known as sarcasm. We're talking about half a trillion dollars uh, and 43 million Americans. How does that fit under the normal understanding of modifying? So, of course, I recognize that in MCI, Justice Scalia's opinion adopted a narrower understanding of that term, but I don't read that opinion to set forth a universal meaning of modify, no matter the statutory context. And here, of course, we have a broader phrase, waive or modify. It's undisputed, and the states aren't contesting, that the ordinary meaning of waive means to eliminate an obligation in its entirety. And I think if you look at that phrase in the context of the statute, that means that modify has to mean making a change up to the point of wholesale elimination. It would be really strange for Congress to say you can eliminate obligations altogether or tweak them just the littlest bit, but you can't do anything in between. Well, but it's waive particular regulatory or statutory provisions. That's right. That, to me, suggests a much more focused use of the word. Well, it's waive or modify paired with the authority to do that with respect to any Title IV provision. So I think that 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 is the — It doesn't say waive, modify or waive loan balances. That's true, but it's very clear that under the Title IV provisions that are expressly referenced in the statute, things like repayment obligations, cancellation, discharge are core features of the program and obvious candidates for waiver in a statute, the central purpose of which is to provide debt relief to borrowers. You know, Congress itself has provided for loan discharge and other circumstances in response to borrower hardship. It's included provisions in the Higher Education Act for bankruptcy, for example, or for total disability um, or school closure, other kinds of hardships. And so it couldn't have surprised Congress one bit that in response to hardship posed by a national emergency, the Secretary might consider similarly providing discharge if that's what it takes to make sure borrowers don't default. you think because there's a provision to allow waiver when your school closes, that because of that Congress shouldn't have been surprised when half a trillion dollars is wiped off the books? Well, I think it demonstrates that in a statute that's centrally focused on providing financial relief, that that terminology should be given its plain meaning, and Congress could have anticipated that in a particular situation, you might expect that the way that you need to ameliorate the borrower harm is through loan forgiveness. And, Mr. Chief Justice, maybe I can just use an example drawn from the initial context of promulgation of this statutory relief. It was initially a bill that was limited just to helping service members who were fighting in wars. And think about an example of a service member who goes off to war, and you can provide HEROES Act relief to ensure that 
the service member doesn't have to pay down the loan while the term of service. But if something were to happen that left that service member worse off because of his service, say a, a disability that doesn't qualify for total discharge, it makes perfect sense to think that Congress would have expected that the Secretary would have authority under this act to make the service member whole and to ensure, just as the plain language suggests, that that service member isn't going to be left worse off because of the circumstance that prompted his service in the first place. And so there's that first-order question of whether you can ever do any debt discharge. And I think in that context, it's perfectly sensible to read this language to authorize that. General, the amount at issue, um, the chief mentioned the quarter of a trillion dollars or the half a trillion dollars. Um, how do you deal with that? Because that seems to favor the argument that this is a major question. Yes, Justice Sotomayor. So, of course, we acknowledge that this is an economically significant action. But I think that that can't possibly be the sole measure for triggering application of the major questions doctrine. In prior cases, the Court has pointed to economic and political significance, but it's also reviewed a litany of additional factors that have demonstrated that based on common-sense understandings of how Congress is likely to legislate, the agency is claiming extravagant regulatory authority that it doesn't actually have. And I think if the Court were to just look at costs alone, it would take the major questions doctrine outside of that extraordinary case because national policies these days frequently do involve more substantial costs or trigger political controversy. Here we think that there are any number of additional factors that demonstrate that this does not fit the major questions paradigm. And the first thing I would point to is that this is not an assertion of regulatory authority at all. This is the administration of a benefits program. And the court in prior cases has recognized that you, using common sense interpretations of understanding how Congress would legislate, Congress might pause before empowering the executive to engage in extravagant regulation with the corresponding cost to individual liberty interests. But in the context of a benefits program, there's not that same reason to hesitate about what Congress might have intended because it's perfectly logical for Congress to broadly empower the executive to provide benefits, especially in a crisis situation or an emergency like we've seen with COVID-19. General, let's say that nobody in Congress was aware that there is such a thing in our case law called the major questions doctrine. So put that out of their minds. And you simply polled every member of Congress and asked that person whether in the ordinary sense of the term they would regard what uh, the government proposes to do with student loans as a major question or something other than a major question. Well, I certainly acknowledge that in a colloquial sense, you could characterize this as a major policy. We're not disputing that point. But again, I think that that applies to any number of actions that the government might take, and especially in the context of benefits programs, where just based on the size of those programs and the number of individuals affected, the costs can frequently run into the billions of dollars. So I Is don't there any conceptual reason why the major questions doctrine should apply uh, to most regulatory matters, but not to the not to benefits programs. The reason we think it shouldn't apply in the same way to benefits programs is because it doesn't involve that corresponding trade-off on individual liberty interests. The court, in some of the prior cases in this area, has expressed concern that if the government is claiming an extraordinary power to regulate, that means it can encroach on the lives of individuals, the affairs of businesses, and quite directly impose onerous burdens on them. It may have an effect on important individual rights, but do you think that the doctrine 
also or perhaps primarily has a separation of powers component? Yes, of course I recognize the court has grounded it in the separation of powers, but I think that that cuts in favor of the distinction that we're trying to make. Because if the court were to apply major questions in this benefits context, even in a circumstance where you might think Congress could quite reasonably want to legislate broadly, then it would have the effect of potentially overriding Congress's intent, contrary to the same kind of separation of powers principles the court has focused on in prior cases. Uh, I don't understand why it would under, uh, undermine Congress's intent to a greater extent in that context. But uh, drawing a distinction between um, benefits programs and other programs seems to presume that when it comes to the administration of benefits programs, trillion dollars here, trillion dollars there, doesn't really make that much difference to Congress. That doesn't seem very uh, sensible. Of course, I acknowledge that there can be substantial costs associated with benefits programs, but I guess the reason I'm pressing on this distinction is because I'm trying to think through, you know, what is Congress supposed to do when it wants to empower the executive? Isn't the question, looking at this program and looking at this question, is this the sort of thing that Congress is likely to address expressly or through uh, a contestable interpretation of some statutory language. Well, of course, we think Congress did address this expressly here, and Congress directed that in the context of a national emergency, that is the the limitation of the HEROES Act, so the Secretary can't invoke this whenever he wants. There has to be that predicate war or military operation or national emergency in that context, in line with Congress's limitations on who can count as an affected individual by that emergency, in line with the purposes that relief has to serve. Congress said you can waive or modify any Title IV provision in order to get relief to borrowers. And, Justice Alito, I would point to the forbearance policy that's been in place for the prior three years, put into place right at the beginning of the pandemic by then-Secretary DeVos. That has been an economically significant program. It's currently costing the federal government more per year than this loan forgiveness plan would cost the government annually. But I would argue that that is right in the heartland of what the HEROES Act aimed to do. It was critical relief that was rushed out at the beginning of this devastating pandemic to ensure that we didn't see spikes in delinquency and default across the nation. May I ask you a question about standing? So it's the case, isn't it, that if any party in either of these two cases has standing, then it would be permissible for us to reach the merits of the issue? Yes. In in the state's case, if you conclude that any party has standing, then the court could go on to the merits. In the case that the court is going to hear next, we think that there are objections to the procedural claim with respect to the borrower's objections there. Uh, Okay. Then let me ask you uh, a question about Mohila, or maybe a question or two. If uh, Mohila itself had brought this suit, would you contest uh, Article III standing? No, we would not. So we think that if Mohila made allegations that the plan was going to have financial effects on it, it could sue in its own name, and we would not contest Article III standing. All right. So then we would consider the Article Three standing of the state of Missouri, right? That's right. And the 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 most the, the part of the Article Three test that's most disputed is injury in fact. Is that correct? That's right. We're also contesting causation and redressability right. here, but I think injury in fact is one of the critical points in dispute with respect to Mohila and the state's attempt to assert Mohila's injury. Okay. Injury in fact is a factual question. Uh, 
So I understand a big thrust of your argument to be that Missouri lacks standing because Mohila is, is separately incorporated. But why should that formal distinction govern the determination of injury in fact? So we think that the injury in fact analysis here has both a factual and a legal component. Um, in the first place, of course, we're making arguments that even if there's a financial injury to Mohila, the state hasn't carried its its burden to show that that will have downstream effects on the state or that those would be cognizable. And Mohila hasn't paid money into the relevant state fund for the past 15 years. It said that further payments were not deemed probable even before this plan was announced. But even putting the, the factual discrepancies to the side, there's a fundamental problem as a matter of law with the claim of injury. And I think it arises directly from two sets of black-letter law principles. The first is that the whole point of incorporation is that you're creating a separate legal person with its own rights and interests. And Missouri has derived substantial benefits from structuring Mohila that way. And the second is the basic Article Three principle that a party has to come to court and assert her own rights and interests. Right. We she can't I, invoke I, the interests you know, of a third party. All of that is certainly true. You think that, our, that the, la- the fact that Mohila is incorporated is the end of the day. That's enough to to defeat standing. We think, as a matter of first principles, yes, that this Court has several times emphasized that when you have a separately incorporated instrumentality like that, the corporate separateness should be respected, and that that serves important— What about LeBron and Amtrak? So those are doctrines not focused on Article Three standing, of course, but instead are testing for other things. In LeBron, that was a state action case, and the court's reasoning was that you shouldn't be able to parcel out governmental uh, uh, functions to an instrumentality and thereby evade the strictures of the Constitution. Well, have we ever decided a case that presents what you see as the issue here or what the parties see as the issue, as one of the issues, which is whether, uh, for Article Three standing purposes, a, an entity is part of a state? No. So the Court hasn't addressed this issue in the context of Article 3. There aren't cases that are directly on point on either side, but I think that we definitely have the better argument of the first principles here based on the propositions I mentioned earlier, including those that generally make clear that the Court won't countenance third-party claims seeking to invoke rights and interests of individuals or entities that aren't before the Court. And I think it would be particularly anomalous to recognize some kind of exception to those principles here for two reasons. No, but the question would be whether — Mohila is part of the state of Missouri for present purposes. And where we're considering injury, in fact, why should the test turn solely or why should uh, the lack of corporate status be a necessary element? Why shouldn't the test be something more like whether the relationship between this entity and the state of Missouri is such that an injury to Mohila will necessarily or presumptively be an injury to the state. And if that's the case, doesn't that all point to the reasons for setting up Mohila as a very relevant factor and the degree of state control, the degree of the governor's control over Mohila as a very important factor? I don't think that those factors should count as important in the analysis. And to the extent the Court is inclined to broaden out the analysis beyond the principles I've articulated about corporate separateness, I think the most critical fact would be whether there's financial entanglement and whether Missouri has itself decided to blur those lines for purposes of making it responsible for Mohila's own liabilities. And in fact, isn't that really, as you say, the most important thing if economic injury is the point? Yes. I had understood that the injury that was being asserted here was an economic injury, but if we look at Mohila and we see 
that its financial interests are totally disentangled from the state. It stands alone. It's incorporated separately. The state is not liable for anything that happens to Mohila. I don't know how that could possibly be uh, a, a reason to say that an injury to Mohila should count as an injury to the state. Yes, we agree exactly with that analysis. And it's important to think about the benefits that Missouri has obtained from structuring Mohila that way. This is not the first lawsuit uh, that Mohila has been involved in. Actually, Mohila is not involved in this particular suit. But in prior suits, when Mohila has been sued, the state's been entirely absent because state law makes clear that Missouri cannot be on the hook for Mohila's liabilities. It creates a wall of separation financially between the two entities, and Missouri gets a lot of benefit from that. And so if Mohila is being injured as a result of the plan, or at least if that's the allegation, Mohila has the ability to defend itself and its interests, correct? Exactly. It's a separate legal person. It has the right to sue or be sued in its own name. There is nothing that stands in the way of Mohila asserting these interests if it's experiencing financial harm. And there's no principle that would support allowing Missouri now to interfere with the separation it itself has created just because it doesn't like the policy. Would we be breaking new ground then if on this basis we found standing? Yes, I'm not aware of any case that would support standing on this basis. Would we be breaking new ground if we found that there was standing? Since we've never been presented, as you admitted earlier, with a case that presents precisely the issue that's here. It's true that it's a new fact pattern, but I think that the court would be breaking new ground with respect to the general principles that it's asserted in third-party standing contexts. There, for example, one of the critical facts the court has highlighted is whether there's some impediment that would prevent the party whose rights and interests are implicated from pursuing its own claim. There is nothing like that here, and the court has never recognized a doctrine of third-party standing on facts like these. Do you have any understanding about why Mohila isn't here? No, the only evidence in the record about Mohila is that its involvement in this suit has been responding to Sunshine Law requests. I think it's possible that loan servicers have Sunshine Law requests brought by? Brought by the state. So Missouri served Sunshine Law requests on Mohila to get information about its because finances. Because Mohila was not giving over information voluntarily. That's correct. I think it just reinforces the sense that there was separation here between the state and this instrumentality. If I had to speculate, I think that loan servicers during the course of the forbearance policy have seen some of their servicing fees be reduced in light of that policy, and it's possible that they are waiting for forbearance to lift so that they can start collecting those fees again, and that might be a possible reason why they make the judgment that they don't want to stand in the way of this forgiveness policy, because it's a critical component of allowing payments to resume. Do you think there might be a dependent relationship between agencies like Mohila and the federal government? since we're speculating about why they're not here. <laughs> well, certainly there are contractual relationships, yes. Can I General, ask you, you — oh, sorry. General, there was a Missouri case in 1979, Menorah Medical Center, um, with an agency much like Mohila. And there, um, the, the Missouri Supreme Court said that that entity was not the state. States are free to organize themselves and structure themselves in any way they want, correct? Correct, yes. And it would be odd for us to have a state say, we're creating a a corporation. We're not going to be responsible for its debts. We're not going to be responsible for any of its contracts. We're not going to be responsible for anything it does financially. And the state itself says, this is not the state. It's an independent corporation, and we're going to say instead that it is the state, correct? 
Yes, I think that it would be really anomalous to override the separation that Missouri itself created between it and Mohila in the context of this case. The or to override its own state Supreme Court's decision that it is not the state. Yes, that's correct. General, I'm thinking of an Arkansas versus Texas. It was significant in that case that Arkansas owned the land of the university. So it does seem that Missouri has created the separateness with respect to the liabilities of Mohila. What if, and I'll ask this to the other side, it's not really clear to me what happens to Mohila's assets. I mean, what if Mohila itself dissolves? There are no shareholders. I mean, does your answer change if even though Missouri is not responsible for the liabilities, it does have an ownership stake in the assets of Mohila? I think it's clear under state law, Justice Barrett, that Missouri doesn't have that kind of ownership interest in the assets of Mohila. And I would point in particular to Missouri Revised Statute 173.410. This is the provision that makes clear that Missouri cannot take the assets of Mohila and appropriate them. They don't go into the general treasury. It makes clear instead that those assets are under Mohila's exclusive control. So I think as a matter of state law here, we don't have anything like the Arkansas case that you just referenced. And as well, the flip side of that is the provision of state law that likewise says Missouri is not going to be liable for any agreements or obligations or liability of Mohila, so that if Mohila goes out there in the world and harms someone, the state's not on the hook for the damage. And that's another distinction from the Arkansas case, where under state law there, it was clear that a suit against the instrumentality was a suit against the state itself. Would you um, have the same position with respect to federal corporations? Like, what about the FDIC or, you know, organizations like that? What if the agency didn't want to sue could the United States sue to protect the federal government's interests if the corporate identity was separate, like here? No, I think that our principles would apply with respect to our own instrumentalities. We could, of course, sue to protect interests, distinct rights and interests of the United States. And so respondents have cited some cases, for example, where uh, an instrumentality entered into a contract on behalf of the United States in the name of the United States as its agent, and we had a contract right that we could enforce in our own name. Or there was another case that involved a statutory right in the tax context to offset, and the United States was permitted to sue on that basis because it had its own rights and interests. But we've never done what the states are doing here, and in the absence of any underlying contract right or statutory right or trust right, just asserted this all-purpose ability to blur the distinction between the sovereign and instrumentalities when they are separately incorporated in this way. Thank you. Thank you, you, General. I just have um, a question on the the major questions doctrine, and I want to just a little bit background for why I want to get your views on how it applies. You're, you're arguing here that um, no notice and comment proceeding was required before the action taken on the half trillion dollars of loans, uh, and that because of your view that the President can act unilaterally, that there was no role for Congress to play in this either. And at least in this case, given your view of standing, there's no role for us to play in this in this either. Now, we take very seriously the idea of uh, separation of powers and that power should be divided uh, to prevent its uh, uh, abuse. And there are many procedural niceties uh, that have to be followed for the same purpose. Um, the case reminds me of the one we had a few years ago under a different administration where the administration tried acting on its own to cancel the Dreamers program. Uh, and we blocked that effort. And I just wonder, given the posture of the case and given our historic concern about uh, the separation of powers, you would recognize at least that this is a case that presents extraordinarily serious, important issues 
about the role of Congress and about the role that we should exercise in scrutinizing that? Significant enough that the major questions doctrine ought to be considered implicated? Well, Mr. Chief Justice, let me try to respond to the concerns about both the role for the judiciary and the role for Congress here. Um, We are not suggesting that there's no role for the judiciary to play. It's that these plaintiffs are not proper plaintiffs in this case. Of course, the Court is bound by Article 3, and as I acknowledge to Justice Alito, we think that loan servicers, for example, would have standing to challenge this plan. But the fact that the, the loan servicers haven't yet challenged to date doesn't provide a basis to overlook those fundamental Article 3 requirements and distort the meaning of how this Court has previously articulated standing principles uh, in a circumstance where the states can't otherwise demonstrate their standing to sue. With respect to the role for Congress, I think what's clear is, of course, we're recognizing that Congress could take additional action if it disapproves this plan. In fact, there were bills introduced to alter the text of the HEROES Act to specifically provide that the Secretary can't authorize loan discharge. Those bills didn't pass, but that's one role Congress can play. I think, though, that if the Court is focused on trying to ensure that Congress's role in this process is respected, that just argues in favor of reading this text in line with what the plain language suggests. You know, these are not words of limitation in the actual assertion of authority here, waive or modify any Title IV provision. The states want this Court to say Congress really only meant waive or modify some of the provisions, not all of them, not the central provisions that govern repayment and cancellation, when those would have been obvious candidates for waiver or modification in a loan discharge program. And if the Court overrides that clear HEROES Act language here, I think that it could only thwart Congress's intent in this particular posture of ensuring that you have the tools, the Secretary has the tools he needs to take care of Americans in a a national emergency situation. But whether Congress uh, acted or not was a factor that we considered in the major questions doctrine. And uh, the way we considered it, Uh, is whether or not the issue uh, that was before the Court is something that had been seriously considered and debated and was a matter of political controversy before Congress. Um, That certainly is the case here, right? That's right. We're not disputing that this is a politically significant action. But if you're Well, not just a politically significant action, but one that has the attention of Congress. The fact that it hasn't acted under the major questions doctrine but has considered the matter — Uh, we cited a support for the notion that maybe it should be one for Congress. If you're talking about this in the abstract, I think most casual observers would say if you're going to give up that much amount of money, if you're going to affect the obligations of that many Americans on a subject that's of great controversy, they would think that's something for Congress to act on. And if they haven't acted on it, then maybe that's a good lesson to say for the uh, president or, or the um, uh, administrative bureaucracy, that maybe that's not something they should undertake on their own. Well, let me react to that in a couple of different ways, Mr. Chief Justice. First is to emphasize that the unenacted legislation that the states are pointing to here um, did not mirror the particulars of this plan. So I don't think it would be right to say that Congress has specifically focused on this plan and disapproved it. And if the court were to go down that road, I'd point again to the fact that there's, there's legislative inaction on the other side of not amending the HEROES Act. But I would think that the court, as it usually does, would place more focus on enacted legislation. And here, During the pandemic, Congress enacted a provision of the American Rescue Plan that specifically anticipated and sought to facilitate a program of loan discharge by providing that it wouldn't be subject to federal taxation from 2021 to 2025. So I think that that congressional action actually carries more weight in the analysis. Thank you. Justice Thomas, anything further? Uh, Just uh, 
briefly. Uh, there's some uh, discussion in the briefs that um, going past with this provision or that modification or waiver, that this is in effect a cancellation of a debt. That's really what we're talking about. And that as a cancellation of $400 billion in debt, uh, in effect, this is a grant of $400 billion. And it runs headlong into Congress's uh, appropriations authority. And I'd like to give you some time to uh, respond to that. Sure. And and so first, I want to take on the argument that some amici have made in this case about implicating appropriations authority. Of course, implementing this program doesn't require that any money be drawn from the Treasury. And so I don't think that it strictly raises an appropriations issue, which is why I think the states aren't raising that argument here. Uh, And to the extent that the concern is about the secretary taking action in a way that Congress didn't authorize, it seems to me that it just collapses back into the central interpretive question in this case, which is, does the HEROES Act authorize the secretary's action or not? With respect to the concern you raised that the the effect of loan forgiveness here will result in cancellation of a measure of debt for the affected borrowers, of course that's true, but I don't think that that is materially different from the kind of effects you can see from other types of authority that's long been exercised under the HEROES Act. You know, take the forbearance policy that I've mentioned. This has been powerful relief for debtors, I'm sorry, for student loan borrowers while it's been in place with respect to their debt. Uh, And it's had, you know, kind of permanent financial effects on the government, over $150 billion over the course of that forbearance program by the end of it. But it's been absolutely critical relief, and it's provided that kind of help to the student loan borrowers as well, who haven't had to make those interest payments or any payments on their loans while it's been in place. And that, too, can have the kind of consequence of resulting in cancellation of principal during the period of forbearance. The the years that borrowers spent in forbearance count towards loan forgiveness programs, for example. So at the end of the day, those borrowers in income-driven repayment or public service loan forgiveness are going to pay less on their loan overall. It will be forgiven three years earlier or without those three years of payments that they weren't obligated to make. But I don't think that in any sense calls into question the legitimacy and authorization behind the forbearance policy. Well, I I think that uh, forbearance fits more comfortably in uh, modify, waiver modified language. It's you simply forbearing on collecting an underlying debt. But you don't cancel the debt, and that's what we're talking about here. Uh, And certainly there's a cost to that, I understand. But I I still think that you haven't fully explained why, if you looked at this, you could not, you would not argue that the Secretary could actually grant uh, uh, $400 billion. So we agree on that. I'm sorry, outside the context of the HEROES Act? Yes, that's right. We, of course, are premising the so relief you would, here specifically you would rely on the on HEROES appropriations Act. from Congress for that, right? Yes. And the argument is that you are, in effect, doing that without appropriations from Congress. Well, Justice Thomas, I don't see how you could distinguish that from any of the other forms of relief under the HEROES Act. All of those forms of relief cost the federal government money, and often in significant sums. You know, one of the quintessential forms of relief that the government has offered before in periods of extended deferment for soldiers fighting abroad is to pay the interest on their loans for them. And I think you could probably make the same argument of of questioning, well, does that cost the government money? Is there an appropriations overlay there? Does that transform the nature of the program because it takes a loan 
loan with interest and makes it an in- effectively an interest-free loan. But that's exactly what Congress att- intended under this authority. It's to make those changes to the program in direct response to and in direct proportion to the situation the Secretary confronts that will otherwise leave that borrower worse off. Justice Alito? Justice Sotomayor? Returning to the standing question, the states basically say we're going to lose money in taxation in one way or another. Um, In the Texas case, you argued that we should be looking at the cost-benefit, and some of the amici here say that there will be a tremendous benefit to the states from this cancellation because that extra money will um, result in increased consumer spending and decreased housing insecurity, um, less defaults on other loans that those borrowers may have, et cetera. Um, do you agree with those amici that the economic benefits outweigh any alleged financial harm in this case? As a factual matter, we do not disagree. As a legal matter, we haven't asked the court to rely on that as a basis for standing because we think that the invocation of these harms to tax revenues are so easily answered under this court's precedent. And I would point the court to the Pennsylvania versus New Jersey case. It is on all fours with this one, precisely identical. And so we just think you don't need to go down the road of thinking about um, some of the broader arguments about tax injury in this case because it's so clear that this court has already rejected the very injury the states are asserting under the Pennsylvania case. In Pennsylvania, it was a tax credit that was going to be removed, so it's almost identical to this, correct? Exactly. Pennsylvania had issued its tax credit before the New Jersey law that they were opposed to and had extended it to residents when they pay taxes in other states. And then New Jersey came along and changed its tax code to impose newly a a commuter tax that would ultimately deplete Pennsylvania's tax revenues. And the court said that self-inflicted because nothing required Pennsylvania to extend that tax credit Nothing prohibits Pennsylvania from withdrawing it now. And that analysis applies equally here because, of course, there is nothing that requires the states to tie their definition of gross income to the federal tax code. Two of the states here, Arkansas and Missouri, don't do that. And there's nothing that prevents them from changing that if they don't want to honor the the forgiveness from taxation that the federal government is now under. Thank you. Justice Kagan? Uh, General Pilagar, I want to change the subject a bit. Um, uh, the, uh, your friends on the, the state side and uh, also the borrowers in the other case have a number of statutory arguments. They frame them as statutory arguments, saying this wasn't necessary under the terms of the statute, um, saying that it leaves borrowers better off, not worse off, again, pointing to statutory language, um, uh, saying that, you know, it, uh, the borrowers at targets aren't worse off because of the pandemic. Now, I'm not sure that I understand um, really those arguments as statutory arguments as much as I understand them as arbitrary and capricious arguments, that essentially they are saying that the secretary just did not say the right things, did not make the right findings, did not properly justify um, what he did here, that there is no sense in which we read this memorandum and we come away thinking, oh, yes, these harms were caused by the pandemic, and, um, uh, and there's a basis for this action and, uh, and, a, and a sufficient basis for this action. So I wanted to give you a chance to talk about that. Uh, it's it's uh, the, essentially the tie to the pandemic of the sort of harms that the Secretary said made relief appropriate. 
So let me say at the outset that I agree that those kinds of arguments, I think, find a much more natural home in arbitrary and capricious analysis. And the reason for that is because it's clear that Congress tolerated uh, overbreadth in this statute. It told the Secretary, for example, that he can act on a class-wide basis. He doesn't need to go case by case with respect to each individual borrower who stands to benefit under Heroes Act relief. It said he should take action to um, ensure, that is, make certain that borrowers aren't left worse off as may be necessary, not as strictly necessary. So once we're in the world where it's clear under the statute that the Secretary isn't violating the Heroes Act by providing relief that's class-wide and may have the effect of offering critical benefits to borrowers who, as it turns out, wouldn't have needed them in the absence of the relief, then I think the question boils down to, has the Secretary justified his line drawing and the scope of relief? And that really should function under arbitrary and capricious review. And here, I think with respect to all of the state's arguments, they lack merit when you look at the Secretary's explanation for why this relief, in his judgment, was necessary. He documented the substantial economic impacts of the COVID pandemic across the entire country that's already necessitated unprecedented levels of aid that we've never seen before, $5 trillion and other pandemic relief efforts, this forbearance policy under the HEROES Act that the department had never put into place before. So he documented those financial effects the pandemic has had on borrowers. And then he explained using data that he examined that huge swaths, substantial percentages of borrowers were going to be at serious risk of default and delinquency or inability to pay their loans once forbearance ends. And that ultimately justified his decision about how to craft the limits within the program and the scope of relief to offer. And I think that all of the state's arguments about how that wasn't strictly necessary or that maybe it doesn't have enough of a connection to the pandemic are answered in full by the Secretary's analysis here. Thank you. Justice Gorsuch? I'd like to follow up on Justice Kagan's question, General. Um, Under State Farm, one of the things that uh, the government must normally do is, in its memoranda, explain not just the the benefits of its proposed course of action, but also grapple with the costs or negative effects of of a program that it proposes. And um, your friends on the other side argue that that's another deficiency in the Secretary's memorandum, and I'd like to give you the chance to respond to that. Yes, of course. So I want to say at the outset that my friends are mistaken to suggest that the secretary didn't even consider costs here. The department extensively modeled the costs associated with this program and submitted those cost estimates to OMB. I I, I don't just mean the numbers, um, but generally the the negative effects um, to the economy, to other persons, to people who don't have this opportunity for debt relief. There are a variety of factors that under State Farm normally the government would have to consider, and and your friends on the other side argue those are not present in this memorandum. Well, I think that those were were certainly part and parcel of the Secretary's determination about how to tailor this relief. The Secretary recognized that the central purpose of the HEROES Act was implicated here because there were going to be millions and millions of student loan borrowers who were at serious risk of default and who were in a worse position because of the pandemic. But then he decided to tailor the plan to look at that, that those particular risks and decide on the scope of relief to offer those borrowers. And of course, the costs associated with that are the flip side of providing HEROES Act relief in any circumstance. There are always going to be the, the cost to the government of offering that benefit to borrowers. Again, not, ju- not just the cost to the government. I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah. I think, uh, what I think they argue that is missing is cost to other persons in terms of fairness, for example, people who've paid their loans, people who um, don't ha- have 
plan their lives around not seeking loans um, and people who are not eligible for loans in the first place, and that a half a trillion dollars is being diverted to one group of favored persons over others. I think that's the nature of their argument, in addition to, as you point out, the cost of the FISC. That I didn't see anything in the memorandum that dealt with those kinds of questions. And if there is something, I'd be appreciative if you could point me to it. No, there's not. But that's because I think that those kinds of arguments are inconsistent with the statutory scheme that Congress set up here. Congress already made the judgment that in the context of a national emergency, you should be able to provide borrowers with this kind of relief to serve this purpose. And so I think for for the states to suggest that it's incumbent on the secretary to say, actually, I'm not going to do that, even though Congress wanted to, me to ensure that borrowers won't be left worse off, is, is just at war with okay. the whole statutory purpose. I appreciate that. Um, it, Congress has given uh, the executive branch a lot of emergency authority, um, and I, I think your argument rests on that. But it also requires generally uh, the president to specify the provisions of law under which he proposes that he or others will act. Uh, that's 50 U.S.C. 1631, I think. My notes are right. Um, and, and I'm just wondering, did that happen here? Yes, it did. So the COVID-19 emergency, um, the specific provisions that he invoked were part of the Social Security Act and HHS's authority to target the spread of disease. Um, I can't give you the exact citation here, but that determination was made. Did he indicate anything under the HEROES Act or the Department of Education that's acting in this case? No, but I think that it's clear that the HEROES Act is linked to the declaration of the national emergency, not the other way around. Okay. And then um, finally, on standing, um, in, in the New York census case, the majority of this court held that the failure to count an individual, potential failure to count an individual, uh, undercount uh, the census, would have potential effects to the state of New York in, the terms, in terms of the benefits it might later receive. That kind of knock-on effect was sufficient to constitute standing in that case. And I'd just like to get your thoughts on how you'd have us distinguish that. Sure. So in that case, of course, the court was looking at a census count that was going to plug in directly to the amount of federal funding that the state would receive. And I think that, you know, in, in the kind of terminology that we've been using and thinking about this issue with, that was a direct effect, that effectively the action would, by virtue of determining federal funding for the state, in that way operate directly on the state or, or at least determine its rights and interests. And here, there's not the same kind of direct effect. Of course, as I've already mentioned to Justice Sutton, Sotomayor, we think that this is a self-inflicted injury to begin with, so the court doesn't need to get into those issues. But even if it does, here the kind of downstream effects on tax revenues bring this case within Florida versus Mellon as the closest analog and not Department of Commerce. Thank you. Justice Kavanaugh? I'd like to pick up on the Chief Justice's and Justice Thomas's questions on statutory text and then our precedent. I think you said earlier what was Congress in 2003 supposed to do. Uh, in terms of advance authorization. But, of course, they could have, in 2003, referred to loan cancellation and loan forgiveness, and those are not in the statutory text. So then that leaves us with a situation that I think we've seen before, an old statute in a general language, Congress specifically considering the present issue uh, repeatedly, but not, as you acknowledged, passing legislation that would authorize the specific a action. And then in the wake of Congress not authorizing the action, the executive nonetheless doing a 
massive new program, and that seems uh, problematic under going back to the benzene case, the Brown and Williamson, UARG, you know the line of cases. So why does this case not fit into that formula that we've seen before in prior cases? So there was a lot packed in there, and I want to be careful and try to respond to each of the considerations you raised, because I think actually down the line, this case is a far cry from those prior situations the court has confronted. You mentioned the idea of taking an old statute with, you know, general language or cryptic language and pressing it into service. I don't think that that is a fair characterization of this use of the HEROES Act. The whole point of this statute, its central mission and function, is to ensure that in the face of a national emergency that is causing financial harm to borrowers, the secretary can do something. He can alter the student loan program to ensure that they're not worse off. So there's not the same mismatch here of taking an old statute and dusting it off and deploying it in a context where Congress could never have imagined it would be used before. Instead, this is a perfect fit with the problem that the secretary confronted. Um, You also suggested that there would have been a clearer way for Congress to formulate this language, that there's no express reference here. But I think that that doesn't carry a lot of significance in this context because, of course, Congress didn't enumerate any of the possible forms of relief under the HEROES Act. It says that the Secretary can consider waiving or modifying all Title IV provisions. And certainly, if there was an enumerated list, you might be able to draw inferences from that. But here, I think the opposite inference applies, that Congress wanted to cover the waterfront and ensure in advance that the secretary had the tools, depending on whatever situation he confronted, to make sure that student loan borrowers weren't going to be left worse off. You mentioned the congressional inaction, and I think that it, it's true that I acknowledge uh, that that demonstrates that this is a politically significant issue. We have we have never contested that point. But there again, as I mentioned to the Chief Justice, we have inaction on both sides. Congress has not amended the HEROES Act and instead enacted the provision of the American Rescue Plan that anticipated this, this program in particular and facilitated it by ensuring that those discharges would not be subject to federal taxation. And then the other thing I would add, you you did not put this in, but if you'll indulge me, this is not a situation where the secretary is acting outside the heartland of his authority. In some of the cases that you've mentioned, you have, you know, concerns that the the agency is acting outside the core of its domain, the CDC inserting itself in the landlord-tenant relationship, for example. But that's not what we have here. This is the student loan program. That falls within the wheelhouse of the Secretary of Education. He exercises comprehensive authority over that program. These are federal loans between the federal government and student loan borrowers. So this is a situation where the Secretary is really acting within the core of his expertise and his authority. Something else you said earlier was that we shouldn't necessarily apply that line of precedent in this situation because this is not a regulatory program but a but a benefits program. But I want to push back a little bit on that and get your uh, response, which is in something like this, there are going to be winners and losers, uh, and um, that raises similar concerns about individual rights, individual liberty um, that are present arguably in regulatory programs uh, as well, and uh, why, therefore, wouldn't the same line of precedence that we've applied in the regulatory context apply also in the benefits context to consider whether we need specific express congressional authorization? 
Well, I think that at the very least, to the extent that there are those considerations that you referenced, they're not direct in the same way that expansive regulatory authority is. You know, when you've got a government uh, program that is, as as the Court has said before, constitutes extravagant regulatory authority, that takes an identifiable group of individuals or entities and directly imposes burdens or costs on them. And I think that there is a distinction with the benefit context when it comes to how Congress is likely to legislate and its general comfort level with broadly empowering the executive to provide benefits to Americans, especially in the context of an emergency situation. But even if you didn't think that that uh, benefits and regulation distinction should carry the day and be a bright-line rule, at the very least, I think it should factor into the analysis when applying interpretive principles here and in looking at what Congress is, is doing. And as I had mentioned before and, and would love to finish here, you know, think about what Congress is supposed to do. There you are, Congress in 2003, thinking we can't predict the future. We don't know exactly what national emergencies will happen. But what we want to ensure is that we are empowering the federal government to take care of student loan borrowers and not leave them at substantial risk of being worse off with their ability to repay their loans. And the language that Congress enacted here is a perfect fit to accomplish that goal. And it's hard to see what Congress could have done differently. Last question. Broadening it out uh, in thinking about, you mentioned emergencies, the history of this court with respect to executive assertions of emergencies. Uh, some of the biggest mistakes in the court's history were deferring to uh, assertions of executive emergency power. Some of the finest moments in the court's history were uh, pushing back against presidential assertions of emergency power, and that's continued you know, not just in the Korean War, but post 9 11. Uh, in some of the cases there. So given that history, uh, and there's a concern, I suppose, that I feel at least about how to handle an emergency assertion. You know, some of the amicus briefs, one of them from a professor says this is a case study in abuse of executive emergency power. So I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm just saying that's the assertion, and I want to get your assessment. This is a big-picture question, so I'll give you a little time, of how we should think about our role in uh, assertion of presidential emergency power, given the Court's history. Well, I think in, in light of that history, in all of the contexts that you identified, it's where the distinction between regulation and benefits really makes a difference. Uh, And it actually tracks some of the concerns that have been raised about standing and the Chief Justice's questions about who could actually sue on this plan and what role there is for the judiciary. To the extent that there is a limited category of people who have the actual kind of cognizable Article III harm that would permit standing in a case like this one, I think that just shows that that's because when the government is administering a benefits program, there are fewer... Uh, reasons to be concerned that it is going to have the kind of profound um, burdens or or regulatory effects that might prompt a note of caution in other contexts involving exercises of emergency powers. Instead, I think that the considerations all line up on the other side when you think about an emergency situation. It is logical for Congress in, in confronting that possibility to think, we want to make sure that without delay, the executive branch can take care of Americans and can get them essential benefits it did so here with language that has many other limitations. So we are not claiming just limitless authority for the federal government to do what it wants in an emergency. The HEROES Act limits the circumstances that can trigger the authority. It says who you can help. It says how you can help them. Uh, and it enumerates the purposes that the aid has to serve. So in all of those ways, Congress can find that authority. 
But in a circumstance like this one where the Secretary has made the findings that without this critical relief for debtors, we are going to have a wave of default across the country with all of the negative consequences that has for borrowers, I think it is precisely the type of context where the executive should be able to implement those emergency powers. Thank you very much. Justice Barrett? Shano, my first question is clarifying because I think I may have misunderstood. You said at the start of your argument that the Secretary both waived and modified. I had understood that the Secretary only relied on the modification in the Federal Register at the relevant sites at 87 Federal Registers, 61512 and 61514. Um, is it in those same? Did I just miss in there? Did he also specifically say waive? So I, I understand where your confusion comes yeah. from because at times in the Federal Register, he spoke of modifications. And then if you read down in the next paragraph, he said these waivers will. Uh, so I think he was treating these as both waivers and modifications. And the relevant decision memo specifically says, I hereby issue waivers and modifications of the relevant provisions of Title IV. That's at the site I gave earlier at JA-261. So I would look at that as well to understand what the Secretary was doing. Okay. And to be clear, and I think maybe some of the confusion is waivers, I guess when I saw that in the language, I thought he was talking, using waiver as a synonym for cancellation there with respect to the underlying debt, the waiver of the obligation to pay back the principal. And just to be clear, waiver in the statute refers to waiving the statutory and regulatory provisions, not waiving the obligation to repay. That's correct. So if you kind of trace through the specific provisions that he invoked, they are statutory and regulatory provisions, and they establish the terms of the student loan program and then also deal with discharge and cancellation authority. And he said that he was issuing waivers and modifications of, of all of those provisions. And I think the right way to conceptualize this is that he was waiving the elements of the discharge and cancellation provisions that are inapplicable in this program that would limit eligibility to other contexts and then modifying the provisions to bring it in line with this program and the the student loan borrowers who are eligible for relief. So kind of like if you think of it as red penciling, both deleting and then adding back in, waiving and then putting his own requirements in. That's right. And the states have suggested there was something improper about adding the requirements in, but the HEROES Act directs him to do this. That subsection B2 specifically says he has to publish the terms and conditions for the loan program that are going to apply in lieu of the waived and modified provisions. So there's nothing improper about the secretary delineating how those waivers and modifications were going to operate. Okay. Next question is also a clarification because I want to be sure I understand your position on LeBron and the overlap potentially between when we're thinking about are you acting as an arm of the government for purposes of, say, like in the Amtrak sense, are you bound by the First Amendment? And are is Mohila part of the government of Missouri for purposes of standing? So could Mohila, say, deny loans to people on the basis of their race or their religion? Would the First Amendment bind Mohila? I think that Mohila likely would qualify as a state actor under the LeBron test, but I don't think that the LeBron test should in any way be controlling for Article Three standing purposes. Well, why would that be? How can they be part of the government for purposes of the state action doctrine, but then not for purposes of standing? Either they are or they are not part of the government of Missouri, right? 
So we're certainly not disputing that they could be, that they're a public instrumentality, that they have governmental functions, uh, and that's the kind of inquiry the court would engage in to determine whether they're brought within the state action doctrine. But one way to think about this is that the court, in trying to kind of analyze who's a state actor, has made clear that it would be inappropriate for a state to be able to separately incorporate an instrumentality, for example, and that way evade the strictures of the Constitution. There's kind of a good equitable reason to ensure that states can't thereby unbind themselves from the Bill of Rights with respect to fundamental rights of citizens. Here, I think all of the equitable considerations line up in precisely the opposite direction. We have a situation here where Missouri has benefited from the corporate separateness. It's ensured that it's not going to be responsible for Mohila's debts. And to now allow it to come in and blur that line and say, actually, you should just treat it and this separate corporation as one and the same would actually produce the kind of inequity that the state action doctrine is guarding against. So two different buckets. Three, if you throw in sovereign immunity, too, you'd say one test is for purposes of state action, another test for purposes of sovereign immunity, and another test for purposes of standing. That's right. And for sovereign immunity, I just want to be clear that we don't think Mohila actually qualifies as an arm of the state for sovereign immunity purposes, because there, one of the critical factors is whether a lawsuit against the instrumentality can get at the state treasury. And here, the financial separation makes clear that there is a strict wall and that Missouri is not going to be responsible for Mohila's debts. Lower courts have gone both directions on this, but we think that under this court's precedent, Mohila wouldn't qualify as an arm of the state. Even if it did, though, yes, we think that there is a different inquiry under Article 3. Okay. And now I just want to return to Justice Kagan's questions about whether we think about these as statutory arguments or arbitrary and capricious arguments, some of these arguments about are you leaving them worse off or better off. Um, Specifically, I want to focus on the causation. It seems to me that the government's position must be that the HEROES Act permits but for causation, it doesn't require proximate cause because the Secretary's memo also refers to things like Russia's invasion of Ukraine and, you know, inflation and other things that would, well, I mean, the invasion of Ukraine has nothing to do with COVID, but the other things that would have a more attenuated uh, relationship to COVID. So is that your position? It would be a but for Yes, that is our position. We think that it should be but for causation, and the states were challenging that below. They haven't actually revived those arguments here, and I don't understand them to be to be urging a different standard, or at least they haven't made that a central aspect of their arguments in the court. But would that bear on the question of whether this is a statutory interpretation question or not, whether this is within the Secretary's authority? I mean, below, the government took the position, too, that even in 10 years from now, it could forgive loans based on COVID if effects were lingering, right? No, the district court completely misunderstood that colloquy at oral argument. What government counsel said in that oral argument is if the national emergency is ongoing, if we are still in 10 years in the midst of a raging COVID pandemic and it's producing all of those same harms, um, he said it would be hard to fathom. And of course, we know that we are actually as a nation, now working to recover from the pandemic. But in the counterfactual world, as he understood the hypothetical, he said the HEROES Act authority would continue to apply. We are not suggesting that you could have that kind of temporal attenuation from a national emergency and say that, you know, ending today and going forward 10 years from now, you could point back to COVID in in this time period as a basis for HEROES Act relief. But of course, we don't have anything like that. The Secretary acted now in the midst of the pandemic. And in in recognition that it's time for the forbearance policy to end, but that is going to leave huge numbers of borrowers uh, unable to pay their loans. That's very helpful. Thank you. Justice Jackson? Yes, I have two questions, one concrete and one big picture. Um, The concrete question comes from uh, a statement that you make in your reply brief about Mohila standing to earn offsetting fees. 
Um, can you spell out what those offsets, by, and by that I mean offsetting fees, fees from the discharges so that we aren't even really sure, you know, what the net loss would be? Can you spell out a little bit more about those? Yes. So under the department's contracts with Mohila, Mohila receives fees for discharging accounts. And we were making the point that here, Missouri hasn't come forward with any allegations that Mohila will actually, some total, suffer financial injury under this plan. This is all just in service of making the, the broader point that any financial effects downstream on the state here are attenuated and speculative. So we don't know um, really what the ultimate loss would be to Mohila, even if we believe that Mohila is part of the state. That's right. The states haven't offered any evidence in that regard to substantiate their assertion of standing. All right. And and I also have uh, a big picture question about standing. You've been arguing uh, that standing here would be a reach um, if we were to, for example, find that, you know, Mohila somehow – uh, losses to it count for the purpose of the state um, based on established standing principles. And what I've been mulling and wondering is whether the same concerns about the political significance of this case that the chief pointed to uh, could be a reason um, for us to hold the line in terms of thinking about our standing doctrine and whether or not we should expand it in this area. Um, I understood that the standing bar really – Um, you know, as applied in a case like this, would allow the political branches to hash this out without interference, uh, you know, from a torrent of lawsuits uh, brought by states and entities and individuals who don't have a real personal stake in uh, the outcome. And in some ways, it's not unlike a case we heard last week where people were very concerned uh, about uh, you know, lawsuits against tech companies and how they might hobble these companies if we allowed them to go forward. And I guess I have that same worry about the operation of the federal government um, and, and its ability to govern if we look at our standing doctrine in cases like this and we find that, you know, even the most minor state interest, a dormant fund that hasn't been you know, funded or used by the state in 15 years, if that can be the basis for standing, I guess I'm concerned um, that we're going to have a problem in terms of, of, of the federal government's ability to operate. So my question is, um, is this a legitimate concern, and should we th- be thinking uh, in cases like this about that type of concern as we uh, uh, ponder whether to expand our standing doctrines? I think it is a legitimate concern. The court has never suggested before that it should alter ordinary Article III principles and allow plaintiffs to sue based on concerns about the significance of the action. And in fact, the court has said again and again that the fact that no one might have standing to sue about an action doesn't mean that you should alter Article III and allow a suit to proceed because the judiciary doesn't sit as a roving commission to rule on the legality of either Congress's enactments or the executive's implementation of those enactments. But I think it would be particularly anomalous in this case to accept any of the state's attenuated theories of standing because there isn't even a situation where there's no other identifiable plaintiff or possibility to have the the courts weigh in on these issues. The problem here is that the states aren't the proper plaintiff to bring this suit. Thank you. Thank you, General. General Campbell? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. 
The Secretary is attempting to bypass Congress on one of today's most debated policy questions, student loan forgiveness. After many failed legislative efforts, the Secretary seeks to write off nearly a half trillion dollars in loans for over 40 million borrowers. No statute authorizes this sweeping action. On standing, Missouri has the right to vindicate the harms to Mohila. Mohila is a state-created and state-controlled public instrumentality that performs the essential public function of providing financial aid to Missouri students. The Secretary's program threatens to cut Mohila's operating revenue by 40 percent. That will directly undermine Mohila's ability to further its critical public purposes, and the state has standing to assert those harms. On the merits, this is a major questions case. A nearly half-trillion-dollar debt cancellation program is undoubtedly a matter of vast economic and political significance. It is also unprecedented. Never before has the HEROES Act been used to forgive a single loan. In addition, the Secretary here asserts a breathtaking power to do anything that he thinks might reduce the risk of borrowers defaulting even years after a national emergency arises. He needs clear congressional authorization for such power. But he doesn't have it here because the HEROES Act does not authorize this program. The Act permits the Secretary to waive or modify existing provisions because of a national emergency. It does not permit him to rewrite existing provisions to create a new program that covers 95 percent of borrowers and applies to them regardless of how the pandemic affected them. This Court should declare this program unlawful, and I welcome the Court's questions. Uh, General, I think at the beginning you should uh, comment some on the relationship between Mohila and the state of Missouri. Um, primarily, the, as you've heard, uh, the effect of this uh, forgiveness program on Mohila and, by extension, uh, on the state of Missouri for the, um, at least to establish uh, standing. Uh, Sure, Justice Thomas. To start with the effect on Mohila. So Mohila, approximately uh, as of last fiscal year, 77 percent of its operating revenue came from servicing direct loans. The Secretary tells us that nearly half of all all borrowers' loans will be discharged under this program. So it stands to reason that about half of uh, Mohila's operating revenue from direct loans will be cut. And overall, that amounts to about 40 percent of its operating revenue. Now, uh, Justice Jackson asked the question about whether there are offsetting fees. It, it, it's very hard to believe, and the government doesn't offer any details in its reply brief, that a one-time payment of fees for discharging loans will offset the ongoing fee that Mohila earns from servicing those loans. But isn't so, that your burden? I mean, I, I understood the government to say that you are bringing this lawsuit and you have to establish standing. And so to the extent we're trying to assess whether or not Mohila is actually going to be injured, I, I don't think you can answer, but the government hasn't said something about the fees. Well, the go- my point in bringing that up, Justice Jackson, is that the government has any, hasn't said anything about the fees in responding to what we've already substantiated through the documents we've put in. We have put in documents indicating that this will amount to approximately a 40 percent loss of operating revenue for Mohila. And in response, the government referenced potential offsetting costs, which they don't quantify, and they don't show that that would significantly reduce the injury that we're anticipating. Mohila now, isn't here, General Crawford. Is that correct? 
Uh, Mohila is not here, it but its interests are here. It has the ability to sue and be sued. It's been set up as an independent corporate entity with the ability to bring suits on its own. Usually we don't allow one person to step into another's shoes and say, I think that that person suffered a harm, even if the harm is very great. Um, uh, we, 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 we leave it to the person, him or her or itself, to make that judgment. Now, here the state has derived very substantial benefits from setting up Mohila as an independent body with um, a, a financial distance from the state and sue-and-be-sued authority. So why isn't Mohila responsible for deciding whether to bring this suit? Uh, we don't deny that Mohila has, could file a suit like that, but the state's interest is directly implicated here, so it is allowed to assert the interest it has in Mohila directly. But I guess, there, I mean, there are third parties all the time who have an interest in, gosh, I, I wish that party over there would bring a suit um, because uh, I have some relationship with that third party, and I would like it very much if that third party represented its own interests better, in my view. But we don't do that. We, 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 we don't allow that kind of um, uh, uh, interference with the decision of the entity involved to decide whether the harm is of the kind that, uh, that they want to sue for. Well, the government is different. This court has recognized that in cases like Cherry Cotton Mills and Erickson, where it's allowed the federal government to assert the interests of federally created corporations. I, I believe that in those cases, the federal government had an independent interest. So the federal government was not saying, oh, we just have an entitlement to stand in the shoes of the, the federal corporation. Uh, two, two responses. The first response is I don't think that's the best reading, certainly, of Cherry Cotton Mills. Cherry Cotton Mills, the court discussed a number of facts, and then at the end said the reason why the government can assert the federal corporation's interest is because it is performing purely governmental purposes. That's exactly what's happening here. The state of Missouri has declared that everything Mohila does is the performance of an essential public function. So that's the first response. The second response is even if the state does need an interest, the state has an interest here. I'd identify at least three. The first interest is that the state created Mohila to provide financial aid for Missouri students, and that's what it does. The second interest is in the Lewis and Clark Discovery Fund. And the third interest is in the regular contributions that Mohila makes to the state scholarship programs. Now, there was some discussion earlier, earlier about the Lewis and Clark Fund and some uh, suggestion that it's a dormant fund that no longer exists. I, I think it's clear. I, I think we need to clarify what exactly is the status. So, yes, it's true that there hasn't been a contribution in the last 15 years, but that's because the state has negotiated with Mohila for Mohila in lieu of making the Lewis and Clark contribution to contribute over $65 million directly to the state scholarship program. And in exchange for those agreements, the, the uh, state has allowed the Lewis and Clark deadline to be extended. So at this point, the question is, what's going to happen at the next deadline? The next deadline is coming up next year. And it, if the question before this court is whether cutting Mohila's operating revenue by 40% will increase the risk that it either won't make the next contribution to the Lewis and Clark Fund or it won't make the next payment to the scholarship fund in lieu of the Lewis and Clark Fund. So that's what's most important to you now is the Lewis and Clark Fund? No, it's not, Your Honor. What's most important to us is that the state can speak directly for Mohila. But I was responding to the question about the interest that I guess I understood the interest to be if Mohila was really Missouri, the loss of the servicing fees. 
Am I misunderstanding that? Uh, no, you have not. two different arguments, right? That's you have correct. That argument, and then you have this argument about the Lewis and Clark Fund. That, that's correct. My first response to Justice Kagan, I was trying to focus on the first theory, and then the second response, where I got into the Lewis and Clark Fund, I was responding under the second. On right, so the first theory, um, it's hard to imagine how the state of Missouri can claim an injury, putting the Lewis and Clark and the scholarship issues aside when it's not responsible for the debts of MOLA, it's not responsible for the contracts it enters into, it doesn't own the assets of that corporation, Um, there is on paper no financial obligation by the state or loss to the state by anything MOHILA does or anything it gets. I'm, I'm putting aside Lewis and Clark. It's hard, it's just very hard for me to say that there is an interest sufficient for the state to speak on behalf of an entity who has the right to sue or be sued. When this court in LeBron and when the Missouri Supreme Court in Casualty Reciprocal Exchange consider whether an entity is a part of the government, it looks at a far more broad but those analysis. Are those are different issues. Standing has to do with injury. It doesn't have to do with are you evading the Constitution? Are you trying to delegate public functions? Those are all are you immune because you are acting in a way that only a state can? Those are very, very different questions. This is the question of standing, which relies on injury and fact. How can you have, I'm putting Lewis and Clark aside, how can you have injury and fact if you've immunized, you the state, have immunized yourself from any liability or any injury that Mohila can experience? Because the state speaks for Mohila. The state represents Mohila. Well, it, it decided to give this entity the right to sue and be sued. So it it chose to say, I'm not injured in fact. Speaking is not the same as injury. Your Honor, the the federally created corporations in Cherry Cotton Mills and Erickson also had the right to sue and be sued, but that didn't stop the federal government from asserting their interests. In addition, if we're focusing just on the right to sue or be sued, the Secretary has the right to sue or be sued. That doesn't disable the Department of Justice from speaking for their interests. Now, let's go back to Lewis and Clark a moment. Um, The arrangement that Mohila and the state engaged in predated the pandemic, correct? started in 2009, 2010? Uh, the, the Lewis and Clark Fund started in Yes, the in suspension 2000. of Mohila's contributions to it. started correct? in 2008. Um, isn't it a series of speculations that in 2004, absent this uh, <coughs> program, that the state won't continue that arrangement it currently has and continue to defer obligations? Mohila said that it Mohila has already said publicly that it doesn't think that contributions to the Lewis and Clark Fund are within its wheelbarrow obligations. That was one of the reasons this arrangement has been made, correct? Well, uh, Mohila recognizes that it still owes $105 million to the Lewis and Clark Fund. Well, it's, in fact, I understand it's not writing it off as an obligation anymore. But it's It doesn't carry it on its books anymore. Your Honor, if you look at page 20 through 21 of the financial statement we cite in our brief, 
Mohila acknowledges that it still owes $105 million to that fund. And the point that I was making earlier is that the fund, contributions to the fund and contributions to the scholarship program are different sides of the same coin. The state has been constantly, throughout the entire time uh, from 2007 till now, has been constantly receiving payments from Mohila, and those payments have taken the form sometime of Lewis and Clark, but more, more often recently it has taken the form of a scholarship contribution. Have you expressed any plans to actually use the fund to pursue projects in the foreseeable future? And if so, what projects? Uh, at this point, the projects have been put on pause. I see. So we're talking about a fund that hasn't been contributed into because the state has waived the obligation to do so for at least a temporary period of time. And then even if the funds were to go into um, this particular fund, you don't have a set of plans that you are planning to pursue with them. But all that requires is the legislature and the governor to move forward once the money, once the fund has been Yes, has no, been I understand, but we're trying to figure out the degree to which the state is injured by the money not being there. And so on the one hand, you know, I hear Justice Sotomayor exploring with you the fact that the state has allowed the money not to be there in the recent past by saying, don't worry, you don't have to put it in there, Mohila. So that seems to be a a sort of strike against the state now saying we're so injured because the money isn't there. And then we have, on top of that, um, your representation here that the state isn't even actively seeking or interested in the money insofar as it's decided that it's going to engage in some sort of project that we need the money for. So I'm just wondering about the speculative, attenuated nature of the harm that you're alleging on the basis of there not being or of the risk that we won't have extra money put into this fund. Your Honor, I, I disagree with, with what you said, that the state has waived the obligation under the fund. What the state has done is it's engaged in a quid pro quo discussion with Mohila, and it has said that in exchange for $65 million in payments to the scholarship fund, it has allowed the, the timeline to be extended. Yes, That's I apologize. I'm just saying the state has not pressed Mohila to put money into the fund. Because right. it's correct, but because it has been receiving money in another fund. All I, I along. appreciate that, but I guess I'm just still trying to understand how you can look at that fund as the basis for the injury that you're claiming uh, with respect to this particular plan. Your Honor, because the next due date for the fund is the fu- fu- a year from now. And you can't extend it? It can be extended, but that would be in exchange for them giving another contribution to a scholarship fund, which is further showing that there are further financial contributions. And there, the, the plan is not totally uh, uh, ridding them of any opportunity to make money. So they do have some other income, yes? Uh, Mohila? Yes. Other Mohila has other – yes, yes. Mohila has All right. Has other. So we could believe – that the income that Mohila gets from its other sources of revenue could be used to pay off in a year the, uh, the, the amount that the state says it requires in order to put off the obligation yet again, right? I, I, don't, I don't think – well, here, here's the key point in response. 
What Mohila says in the letter that the government filed as supplemental authority with the Eighth Circuit is that they take all available funds beyond their expenses and reasonable <laughs> reserves, and they devote them to student financial aid in Missouri. So if their operating revenues are cut by 40 percent, we know what they do with the money at the top, the excess money. They give it to students attending school in Missouri. So if their operating revenues go down, that's the first thing that's going to go. General, I'd like to put aside the Lewis and Clark Fund for a minute, and I want to return to the direct injury argument, the Mohila is an arm of the state argument. Justice Sotomayor was pointing out, statutorily, Mohila has the right to sue and be sued. Uh, the state doesn't have responsibility for its liabilities, and the state has disclaimed any, res- any claim to the assets. Is that correct? I would disagree with the last point. I don't think okay. the state has disclaimed any interest in the assets. So explain to me why. Because on the one hand, you have, you know, in um, Missouri Statute 173.420, you have uh, the last sentence says that nothing in these sections shall be construed to deprive the state and its governmental subdivisions of their respective powers over assets of the authority. But then in the next section, um, 425, it says no asset of the authority shall be considered to be part of the revenue of the state. So which is it? I mean, because it would be hard to see how a win for the state would benefit Mohila or a win for Mohila would benefit the state if the assets are completely separate. You don't get any money out of it, putting aside Lewis and Clark, because I'm not really interested in that. So, Your Honor, to to go to the second provision you read, uh, 425, it says no asset of the authority shall be considered to be part of the revenue of the state within the meaning of a specific state constitutional provision. So I would then say that's only for a limited purpose. The prior provision that you read where the state has preserved its authority over Mohila's assets shows that any residual interest in Mohila's assets belongs to the state. So we cited the reciprocal casualty exchange case in our brief that shows that the legislature could abolish an entity like Mohila, and if it did, the money would come back to the state. So the state does have the ultimate interest in the property of Mohila. If the state wanted money from Mohila right now, if the state just wanted to pull assets out, say, because the state was going to make a decision to fund the Lewis and Clark Fund, does the state have the authority to do that? Uh, Acting through the legislature, it does. And and I think the Lewis and Clark Fund is actually a great example of that. So the Lewis and Clark Fund wasn't created until 26 years after Mohila began its operations. And at that point, the legislature came in and said, Mohila, you have to start giving this uh, source of funding to the state. So the legislature can come in at any time and and request money. Do you want to address why Mohila is not here? Mohila is not here because the state's asserting its interests. Mohila doesn't need to be here because the state has the authority to speak for them. And that brings me to... Why didn't the state just make Mohila come then? If, if Mohila is really an arm of the state and all of this would be a lot easier, I mean, the Solicitor General conceded that if Mohila was here, Mohila would have standing. If Mohila is an arm of the state, why didn't you just strong-arm Mohila and say you've got to pursue this suit? Your Honor, that's a question of state politics, but we believe as a matter of law that the state has the authority to assert its interests. Under the factors in LeBron, under the factors that the state Missouri State Supreme Court recognized in casualty reciprocal exchange, if it's a state-created and state-controlled entity that performs government functions, the state can speak for it regardless. Just, just along the same lines. I mean, it's true that you couldn't even get documents from Mohila without fi- filing the state equivalent of a FOIA request. 
Your Honor, that was the the mechanism by which we went about acquiring the documents. But that just well, that was the mechanism. I think that if Mohila was willing to hand you over the documents, you wouldn't have filed a state FOIA request. Your Honor, I think that further shows that Mohila is a state entity. They're subject to public records laws. They're subject to open meeting laws. They are a entity of the state of Missouri. And when you say acting through the legislature in response to Justice Barrett, do you mean that uh, sort of the, the structure of Mohila would have to be revisited through the legislature? In other words, you've now set it up. We have a law in Missouri that structures this corporation in a certain way, and it is separate. So when you say acting through the legislature, do you mean that there would have to be some kind of amendment to the way in which Mohila is and operates in order to allow for you to reach its assets? I think it would have to be an act of the legislature, whether it took the form of amending the existing statutes or whether it was a new statute. It would have to be an act of the legislature. Counsel, on the merits, um, if I could direct you to uh, the Solicitor General's argument suggesting the major questions doctrine does not apply because this is a benefits program, despite um, our, our holding in King versus Burwell. Um, and, and arguing that it doesn't implicate the Appropriations Clause authority of Congress. Can you address that argument, please? Uh, yes, Your Honor. The whole point of the Major Questions Doctrine is to preserve the separation of powers, and it rests on the presumption that Congress intends to address major questions I understand that, but this is a more specific question with respect to benefits programs right. and the relationship between it and the Appropriations Clause and King versus Burwell. Your Honor, the reason why I referenced the underlying doctrine and why it exists is that those same reasons apply in this benefits context no less than they do in a different regulatory context. The separation of powers is implicated here because we're dealing with a congressionally created program. In addition, if anything, I would say that there are more reasons to apply the major questions doctrine here, because what the agency is effectively doing is exercising the power of the purse by going into the federal balance sheet and crossing off nearly a half trillion dollars in loans payable to the government. That is a quintessentially legislative function. So that's even more reason why the major questions doctrine should apply. Isn't the — I I was just going to ask — That's the whole purpose of the HEROES Act. The whole purpose of the HEROES Act is to say in either for veterans or not for veterans, for people who are in military service or in a national emergency, we give you the authority to impose debt on us. Um, The forbearance of payment is, is it $5 billion a month or something like that? It's an outrageous sum. And yet, that is no one is disputing that the secret that the secretary has that power it's not the amount of money the question is what's congress's intent and we know from the hea act that congress recognized that there would be cancellation of debt for schools that close at least why would you think that congress didn't intend under the heroes act to permit cancellations of debt if the national emergency required it. Because what Congress said in the HEROES Act is that the Secretary has the power to waive or modify existing provisions. It did not give the Secretary the but power all to of those rewrite. A waiver. Well, yes, it did. Uh, Sorry, may I? go ahead. Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, General Campbell, I mean, it, it, it says waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision applicable to the student financial assistance programs. And then... It says the secretary can add terms and conditions to be applied in lieu of 
such statutory and regulatory provisions. So it's really quite clear here. It's like you can waive or modify the old ones, and then you can add new ones in lieu of the old ones. So, you know, Congress could not have made this much more clear. I mean, Congress didn't say exactly the circumstances in which it wanted the Secretary to use this authority. Of course not. This is, this is a, a bill about, like, what happens when you have an emergency. So what Congress said is what happens when you have an emergency is the Secretary has the power to take care of emergencies. And it has that power by way of waiving or modifying any provision and adding others in lieu of them. A couple of responses. The adding in lieu of language, that has to be understood to mean adding along the lines of a modification. It can't be adding just anything the Secretary wants. It has to be read in context with the terms or a waiver. waive or modify. Or a, and, you know, it's not just modify, it's waive. So it's modify, even if we take a kind of MCI-type reading of modify, all, you know, through more major changes, all the way up to waive. And then you can say what terms and conditions should be applied in lieu of those provisions. Congress doesn't get much clearer than that. We we deal with congressional statutes every day that are really confusing. This one is not. Your Honor, I I disagree that what we're dealing with here is a waiver or modification. Three points on waiver. In terms of when when we look at the the publication in the the, uh, Federal Register, it says the Secretary modifies the following provisions. So the Secretary didn't even purport to waive the loan discharge provisions that were cited. Second point, that makes sense because the Secretary wasn't actually excusing compliance with any of the existing requirements. The Secretary was ignoring all of those requirements and creating brand new ones to to, uh, uh, put in place a brand new program. And the third point is, again, we know that there was no waiver here because affected individuals can continue to access all those existing loan discharge programs. If somebody qualifies for the public loan service uh, program, they're able to access it right now. So there was no waiver here. All we have is an attempt to modify, but this goes far beyond a modification because it it is the creation of a brand new program that goes far beyond what Congress intended. In fact, if Congress... Do you think that there is an ability to modify provisions uh, respecting discharge? So, you know, is there any ability? Because there are these, these particular discharge provisions, right? And it has to do with death and with when your school closes and so forth. So suppose the secretary says, that's not enough. Uh, 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 I want to do um, uh, some more. Your, Your Honor, I think there's a good example where the Secretary's done it in the past that was acceptable. So in 2003, the Secretary used the power under the HEROES Act to modify the, uh, an existing requirement to access student loan. And it was under one of those profession-based programs where if you work for a teacher for a certain amount of years, you can get into the program. So let me give you an example. Suppose, like, there's an earthquake. We'll use an earthquake instead of a pandemic. And the Secretary says, this isn't enough. Um, uh, people are, are really being hurt by this. So we have uh, a provision about uh, the borrower dying. The secretary says, I'm also going to allow dischargers where the primary earner in the borrower's household dies. Could the secretary do that? Your Honor, I don't believe so because it doesn't sound like a modification of an existing program. It sounds like the creation of a brand new Really? Program. Just from the borrower dying? The secretary is allowed to do that, but, but the secretary... In, 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 in the face of this massive earthquake is not allowed to say um, or 
not just the borrower, but um, the, the, uh, the primary earner and the borrower's family? Your Honor, the question would come down to whether that is a modification. I, it sounds to me like it might go too far because it's creating a new program. But I even mean, this if is that very was, broad language. Go, go modify or waive any statutory or regulatory provision and come up with new ones. And you're not even going to allow me that? Your Honor, I was going to say, even if that would be sufficient here, it's nothing like this program. This is a program that includes 95 percent of borrowers, regardless of how they were affected by the pandemic. Could the Secretary say, well, there was this terrible earthquake and lots of people's houses were destroyed? And um, so uh, I'm going to uh, 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 discharge the loans of people whose houses were destroyed in this terrible earthquake. Your Honor, it sounds to me like creating a new program. I don't think that that would be okay under the HEROES Act. Now, what I would say I, I, I guess, it, you know, this is an emergency provision. There's an emergency. It's an earthquake. You don't think Congress wanted to give and, — and not just wanted. It's not what Congress thought. It's what Congress said — to give the Secretary power to say, oh, my gosh, people have had their homes wiped out. We're going to discharge their student loans. Your, Your Honor, when it comes to taking that ultimate step to discharging loans, Congress wanted to preserve that for itself. And I think we know we Congress acts in Where pandemic. Where do you see that in the statute? I mean, the, the provision of the statute says any statutory or regulatory provision applicable it, to the student loan program, you can waive, you can add another to deal with an emergency. This isn't a massive delegation to uh, the Secretary of Education. It's it's designed to deal with emergency conditions. You have a lot of power in emergencies. When those people's homes are destroyed, you have the power to, um, to discharge their loans. But Congress still has a voice in emergencies, and we see that through the CARES Congress Act. Congress used its voice. Congress used its voice in enacting this piece of legislation. All this business about executive power, I mean, we worry about executive power when Congress hasn't authorized the use of executive power. Here, Congress has authorized the use of executive power in an emergency situation. We're in that sphere, you know, in those old, all those zones. We're in that sphere where the executive is acting with congressional authorization. Your Honor, I disagree that this is congressional authorization because it's not a modification. It goes way beyond that. It creates a brand-new program, and that's not what the HEROES Act allowed. If the HEROES Act did allow the wholesale rewriting of statutes whenever an emergency arose, then that would create an issue, constitutional issue, under Clinton versus City of New York. And it essentially would be allowing the executive branch to go in and rewrite statutes after the fact, and the executive branch doesn't have that power. Uh, thank you, Counsel. Um, just pick up on the discussion uh, that we've been having at the breadth of the statute at issue here. How does it compare to the breadth of the statutes that were at issue in our major questions doctrine, uh, where we indicated enough, even though the breadth of some of those provisions would, by their terms, literally cover the authority that the agency exercised, that given the nature of the authority and its consequences, that was not clear enough? Your Honor, I think it, it fits within those cases, and I would point the Court specifically to Alabama Association of Realtors. In that case, the statute authorized the relevant federal official to engage in actions that he thought in his judgment were necessary or in his judgment may be necessary. Yet this Court looked at that language and said that it was not broad enough to, to authorize uh, the, the action at issue there, the CDC eviction moratorium, and it did so because of the major questions, Doctor. Justice Thomas? Justice Alito? 
Justice Sotomayor? This is substantially different because the Secretary is authorized to cancel loans under HEA. So this is not an action as a moratorium on eviction, um, which had never occurred previously or uh, wasn't within the wheelhouse of the agency. At least that's what the Court said. I have — I had a difference of opinion. Putting that aside, um, this is not an action that could come as a surprise because it is expressly permitted under the HEA Act, and nothing in the HEROES Act says that the Secretary can't do something that's in the normal course of its business in circumstances that justify it, like a school closing or like a school engaged in fraud. Those are exceptions that clearly are permitted under the HEA to cancel a debt. So why would I have a view that Congress didn't understand that in a proper emergency, debt cancellation would be right? I would go back to my prior prior answer, which is there is a difference between modifying an existing loan forgiveness program in light of the national emergency, which is appropriate. And an example of that is to take the existing uh, loan discharge program for teachers, and there has to be consecutive service, and to say if the reason why that teacher f- would fall out of the consecutive service requirement is because of the national emergency, it's okay to waive that requirement or to modify that That's requirement. That's changing the program. I mean, it's semantics. Clearly a waiver is an extinguishment. Um, whether, you're, whether you're rewriting it to say um, a national emergency will pause your service years. Statute says you have to serve consecutively, and the secretary saying you don't have to, you're rewriting the statute. You just want to say this is a bigger rewrite than I like, but it's not rewriting the statute. It's just saying this obligation is terminated. This obligation to serve continuously is terminated for this period of time. It's a bigger rewrite than the words waiver modify. That that really has us, um, as the third branch of government, changing Congress's words because we don't think we like what's happening. Your Honor, I would uh, — There's a 50 million students who are uh, — will benefit from this, who today will struggle. Many of them don't have assets sufficient to bail them out after the pandemic. They don't have friends or families or others who can help them make these payments. The evidence is clear that many of them will have to default. Their financial situation will be even worse because once you default, the hardship on you is exponentially greater. You can't get credit. You're going to pay higher prices for things. They are going to continue to suffer from this pandemic in a way that the general population doesn't. And what you're saying is now we're going to give judges the right to decide how much aid to give them instead of the person with the expertise and the experience, the Secretary of Education, who's been dealing with educational issues and the problems surrounding student loans. We're going to take it upon ourselves instead of leaving that decision in the hands of the person who has experience with these questions. 
Your Honor, there are additional statutory clues showing that Congress didn't intend the creation of new loan discharge programs. I'd point the Court to subsection A2D. That There, Congress specifically identified one limited instance where the Secretary could excuse the return of funds owed to the government. That was grant overpayments. Counsel, that was an emergency, or that was a situation that was sui generis. That's what emergencies are. Your, Your Honor, Sue I think — generous situations that the Secretary can address in a particular situation. Your Honor, I think by identifying that specific example, Congress was sending a message that it did not want the other provisions to be used to create new loan discharge programs. Justice Kagan? Justice Gorsuch? I understood the Office of Legal uh, Counsel's um, memorandum to suggest that the Secretary, under the statute, had authority to put uh, student uh, borrowers in, in the same condition that they were in prior to the emergency, and that the nature of your argument is that that, that test is not met. Um, do you agree with the OLC's position um, an understanding of the statute, and, 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 do you, and how, do you, how do you argue that it succeeded that authority? Your Honor, I disagree with most everything in the OLC opinion, but I agree with that part of the OLC opinion. I think it's right that that's what the phrase, no worse position, means. It means Congress was telling the the Secretary he had the authority to keep borrowers near the status quo. But what we have here is a program that for 20 million borrowers is going to leave them without a single outstanding loan. That goes well beyond putting them back in the status quo ante. And for the other approximately 20 million borrowers that stand to benefit from this, their average debt is going to go from $29,000 to $13,000. Again, far beyond returning to the status quo ante. And I understand the Secretary has considerable expertise when it comes to educational affairs. Uh, but with, in terms of macroeconomic policy, do we normally assume that every, every secretary cabinet member, as learned as they are, uh, has that kind of knowledge? Uh, no, we don't. When we're dealing with a nearly half-trillion-dollar uh, loan cancellation program, this is squarely in the ken of Congress. Congress has the power and expertise to weigh the balancing competing fiscal implications particularly at that scale. So this is something that's outside the Secretary's expertise. Justice Kavanaugh? I think when we're talking about emergency powers, that certainly focuses the inquiry, but that doesn't uh, mean that the executive can't take action. And it all then turns on the, I think, the language of the statute uh, at issue and the kind of action taken. And I think you have a, uh, a good argument on modify, but what do you do with the word Wave. That is an extremely broad word. Uh, in 2003, Congress was very aware of potential emergency actions in the wake of September 11th and war, possible terrorist attacks, and yet it puts that extremely broad word wave uh, into the statute. Um, why not just read that as written? Your Honor, I I believe we are reading it as written. Uh, Waive means to excuse compliance with an existing obligation, and what the Secretary is purporting to do here is to change existing loan discharge program. 
The Secretary is not waiving anything in those provisions. And so we think, as I explained earlier, that the word waiver simply doesn't apply here. Now, to the extent the Court looks at the term waiver and finds that that's cause to read the phrase waive or modify a little more broadly, it still doesn't reach this program because the Secretary is not dealing with any of these existing provisions that he purports to cite. He's not changing anything within them. He's frankly ignoring what's there and creating a brand new program, and that's not within the language of this statute. You don't think that fits within waiver? I don't believe it does, no. A waiver is to take something away, and the Secretary is not taking anything away from the cited loan discharge provisions. And then on the um, body of precedent we've developed within the pandemic on emergency powers and and major executive actions, we have the eviction moratorium case. We have the national OSHA mandate case. But on the other hand, we have the health care mandate case. And the, I think the distinction, one of the distinctions drawn there was that was more in the, in the wheelhouse of the agency uh, in question. And I think uh, the Solicitor General has argued, and just get your response on, this is right in the wheelhouse. Justice Sotomayor is just saying this, right in the wheelhouse of uh, what the Secretary of Education would normally be expected to do, unlike CDC doing an eviction moratorium. I know you've addressed this a little bit, but just get your response on that. Your Honor, I don't think it's in the wheelhouse because it's creating a brand new program. The only entity that has created new loan discharge programs is Congress. There's a number of them in the Higher Education Act, but the Secretary has never before created a brand new loan cancellation program, particularly under the HEROES Act. As I mentioned at the outset, the HEROES Act has never even been used to forgive a single loan in the past. That's telling because one of the things the court looks at in its major questions jurisprudence is if it's unprecedented. And we certainly have an unprecedented use of the statute here. Thank you. Justice Barrett? Two questions, one on merits, one on standing. Um, First on the merits, do you agree that this administration and the prior administration had authorization under the HEROES Act to pause loan loan repayment obligations? Your Honor, it's a — we're not challenging it in this case. I know, but the question is, do you think it's within it? This kind of goes to the scope of waiver modify, right? Yes. I I think that the — so — if I can go through the timeline to explain. So the first seven days on March 20th, 2020, uh, Secretary DeVos waived but didn't indicate what legal authority she was using. I have no way to assess that because I just don't know what what uh, authority she was using. Then Congress came in seven days later and enacted the CARES Act. The CARES Act put a payment pause in place for six months. At the end of that six-month period, Secretary DeVos extended it for three months. I think arguably that was a legitimate use of the HEROES Act because taking a congressionally created six-month program and extending it for three months seems like it might be a modification. But now that we're two years down the road, we're beyond a modification. And not only that, the connection to the national emergency has become even more tenuous. So your argument is that even assuming that Secretary DeVos initially had the authority to — and you're, you're kind of just — whiffing on the question about before the CARES Act was passed, right? But you're talking about after the CARES Act was passed, she arguably had authority under the HEROES Act to extend the pause, but that at some point as that time dragged on post the CARES Act, when the new administration came in, then 
it exceeded the authority to waive or modify? Your Honor, it could have been the Secretary DeVos had two extensions. It could have been her second extension. I don't think it hinges on who the administration was. At some point, I think it goes beyond a modification, and the connection to the national emergency became too tenuous to maintain it. So it's not that a pause is different in your mind than canceling the obligation to repay the principal. It's the, or, or I guess it's a combination of the distinction between a pause and a cancellation and then the temporal Correct. Breach. Correct. Because I do think there are significant distinctions between a pause and cancellation. I'll give you a few. The first is a pause maintains the status quo. Cancellation puts people in a, in a far better – this cancellation puts people in a far better position. A pause keeps indebtedness from rising versus cancellation erases indebtedness. In addition, as I mentioned before, the connection to the national emergency. When you put a pause in place, when the nation is still dealing with lockdown conditions – that is a, a, a there's a pretty close connection between that and a national emergency. When two and a half years down the road, the secretary, having much time to contemplate this this uh, the situation, comes in and creates a debt forgiveness program for 95 percent of borrowers. The connection to the to the national emergency okay. is too tenuous. I, I understand. Second question's on standing. Could Missouri file suit to vindicate the interests of the city of St. Louis? No, Your Honor, because when we look at the factors that we've cited for why Mohila is a state-created and state-controlled entity, the leadership of the city of Missouri is not selected by the governor or by the state. They're selected at the local level. Thank you. Justice Jackson? So can I just understand your view on waiver or modification with respect to sort of the initial applications of this authority? Um, You know, we're sort of in a certain species of it now, but I'd understood from the SG and from the briefs that originally we're talking about wartime. um, And and so I'm just trying to understand, are you saying that those were not legitimate waivers or modifications under this kind of power? Your Honor, we don't question any of the uses of the HEROES Act prior to... 2020. So right, but I don't know I, if I'm I, what, understanding what is What is your view? Again, I'm just trying to clarify your exchange with um, uh, with Justice Kavanaugh on what waiver means. So are you saying that the Secretary would have had to change something about the regulations but not about their application with respect to the obligations that they require of people? Your, your Honor, if I can try to illustrate it with an example, I think this might get to it. There is an existing loan discharge program for permanent disability, and that requires an individual to expect to be permanently disabled for at least 60 months. If the secretary came in and said, uh, because of the national emergency, if someone was affected because of that, they can uh, reduce that 60-month requirement down to, say, 36 months. That, to me, is a modification of an existing program. That would be an example. In terms of waiver, waiver is when the secretary goes in and would take out an entire uh, one of the existing requirements. And that's not what the secretary's doing here. I that's- understand, but, but, but you're, I guess my question is, do you dispute that under the prior circumstances people owed a certain amount and what the secretary did was modified the amount that they would owe as a result of this um, loan. 
Your Honor, I think that's exactly what he was trying to do, and I think that highlights why there's a problem here. Let me point the court specifically to the statute that we cite on pages 46 through 47 of our brief. Congress knows how to authorize the Secretary to waive or modify an amount owed. We cite provisions in the Higher Education Act that specifically say the Secretary shall waive the amount owed. Here, the Secretary wasn't given that language. If the Secretary instead was given the power to waive or modify provisions. And so that's why the analysis why doesn't here it all, Why doesn't it all reduce to the same thing? And this is where I go back to the sort of original application. I mean, so fine. We have wartime people who are away, and you say you have no problem with the Secretary modifying the regulations insofar as it would help them. But doesn't it reduce to just them not having to pay as much? I don't understand why there's really a distinction between waiving the the regulations in the way that you're reading this and waiving the amount a person owes under a regulation that relates to a loan. Your Honor, there's never been a past use of the HEROES Act that would eliminate the amount that someone owes. So I don't think there's a prior comparator to look to. Okay. Let me just ask you one final question on my big picture concern. So I was listening carefully to your Uh, opening statement, and you started by indicating that this is one of today's most debated policy questions, and you ended by saying that we, the courts, should essentially answer it by invalidating this program. And what concerns me is that to the extent you're talking about separation of powers and major questions, the judiciary is part of the same constitutional separation of powers dynamic um, that compels us to think about questions like the major questions doctrine. And I feel like we really do have to be concerned about jumping into the political fray unless we are prompted to do so by a lawsuit that is brought by someone who has an actual interest. So this is why I'm sort of pressing really hard on the standing point. And so do do you dispute that the ordinary standing rule would be that a plaintiff cannot establish standing by asserting the interests of an independent actor or by saying that an independent actor not before the court will respond to the defendant's actions in a certain way. I mean, isn't the ordinary rule one that really doesn't cover you and what you're asking for, in a way, is an extension of our standing principles to allow for the state to proceed with this action? Your Honor, I don't believe so. I think what we're asking for is the same treatment that the federal government got in Cherry Cotton Mills and Erickson. We're asking for the ability to assert the interests of the public corporation that the state of Missouri created, that it controls, and that it uh, charged with performing nothing but essential public All right, so we'll go back and look at that case. And if we find that the federal government had some sort of a separate interest that it was asserting, do you lose? I mean, is that your only case that is going to make it um, be the case that we can find standing for you? Uh, No, Your Honor. I think that those cases are certainly helpful. I would direct the court, if the court wants to look under um, either federal law to see what it takes to be a part of the government, I would direct the court to LeBron and Department of Transportation that we cite. If the court wants to So you reject the distinction that that the SG pointed to with respect to what those cases were about? Those were not standing cases. We have different doctrines that apply when we're looking at different issues. And the issue of whether or not you are injured by, uh, you know, an injury to another entity, an independent corporation, seems to me to be a separate thing. So do you have a case that would help us to understand 
whether uh, an entity like Mohila that has totally been isolated through state law from liability that can sue for itself, et cetera. Do you have a case where we've said that same kind of entity uh, you can sue as a state in, because you're injured for standing purposes? Your Honor, I think the closest cases we have are the ones I referenced before, Cherry Cotton Mills and uh, Erickson. But I will say that part of the inquiry has to look to state law to see if Missouri is charged with speaking, has the ability to speak on behalf of Mohila. And on that front, I would point the court to two things. One is Missouri Statute 27.06.060, which gives the Attorney General the right to determine whether to litigate um, in the name of the state to protect any interest of the state. And because Mohila is a yeah. part of the state, I see. and the second point that I would direct the court to is the casualty reciprocal exchange case. That's the case that specifically identified what it means to be a public corporation under Missouri state law, and it identifies the same factors that LeBron looked to. It's whether it was created by the government, controlled by the government, and whether it's performing essential public purposes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. (coughs) Rebuttal, general. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I'll pick up with standing and focus on the Mohila-related arguments. Justice Barrett, you asked about a provision of state law 173.420. This is a provision that refers generally to Missouri reserving rights over the assets of Mohila. I think if you look at that in context, it clearly functions as a savings clause. It's making clear that notwithstanding all of the other provisions we've pointed to, like 173.425, 410, these are the provisions that create the strict financial separation, that Missouri is reserving its rights under other sources of law, like eminent domain or search and seizure, and it's not actually limiting its ability to obtain assets in that way. I understand my friend to have conceded that actually Missouri would have to change its law and change the structure of Mohila if it wanted to have any direct access to Mohila's assets, and that makes sense because these other provisions that I just pointed you to are very clear that there is absolute financial separation between the state and Mohila. Uh, You asked as well about control over Mohila, which my friends have emphasized several times. That's actually one of the relevant questions under the arm of the state doctrine, whether you could direct the authority in any way. I'd point to Justice Kavanaugh's decision in the D.C. Circuit in the Puerto Rico Ports Authority case. There it was significant that you could direct the, the authority to sue, and here that's obviously lacking, and the state hasn't attempted to do that. My friend uh, several times brought up the Cherry Cotton Mill and Erickson cases. In Cherry Cotton Mill, there was an express statutory right of the United States to tax offsets, and the court was interpreting that statutory language and determined that the United States had its own interest in the statutory right and further emphasized that with respect to that particular public corporation, and I'm reading from the language of the court's opinion, that for the public corporation, its profits, if any, go to the government, its losses the government must bear. There wasn't the financial separation in that case that exists here, and there was a distinct statutory right on behalf of the United States. Erickson is even further afield. It wasn't a case about standing at all, and there the United States had a contract right that the instrumentality had entered into as an agent of the federal government. The instrumentality was itself a plaintiff in that case, and there was no Article Three issue in the case. Finally, I'll focus on the contributions to the Lewis and Clark Discovery Fund. This is the secondary argument as it relates to Mohila. There are huge factual deficiencies in trying to premise standing on that basis. As we've explained, they haven't been able to 
bring forward allegations that would substantiate the asserted financial impacts on Mohila and certainly haven't established that that will be the likely cause of any default to a fund that hasn't been paid for the last 15 years. But there's also a more fundamental legal problem with their theory. It has no logical stopping point. There's nothing, for example, that would prevent anyone who's owed a debt to say that suddenly they can have standing to challenge a regulation that doesn't affect them in any way because it might affect the debtor who then will be unable to make good on that on that liability. And there is no precedent in this court's Article III doctrine to support that kind of broad expansion of Article III standing here. Turning to the merits, I want to pick up on the colloquies that my friend was having about the meaning of the term waiver modify. And if I understand the gloss that he's putting on that language, I don't think that there would be any room to grant any kind of HEROES Act relief whatsoever. He says that there was no waiver or modification here, but there was. The Secretary took the provisions that deal with discharge and cancellation, and he waived the existing eligibility requirements and modified those provisions to add an additional basis for relief. This is how secretaries across administrations have implemented the HEROES Act. For example, with deferment, the Secretary, in prior uses of the HEROES Act, took the provisions that exist for deferment and waived the existing eligibility requirements and then granted additional deferment in line with the national emergency. That fits with the plain language of the statute, and to suggest that that automatically creates a brand new program would leave very little room for the HEROES Act to operate at all. My friend is getting it exactly backwards. The fact that there are already statutory provisions for things like deferment and forbearance and discharge demonstrates that Congress could foresee that all of those are ways that you grant financial relief to student loan borrowers. And in the context of a statute like this one that is centrally focused on ensuring that the Secretary can act in unforeseen circumstances outside the existing scope of those provisions, Congress directed that the Secretary has the authority to waive or modify in order to expand eligibility for those forms of relief. So we'd ask the Court to reject the State's arguments here. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted. We'll hear uh, uh, argument. We'll continue argument um, uh, in case 22-535, Department of Education versus Brown. Welcome back. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Across the board, Brown and Taylor's arguments in this case run counter to precedent and principle. On standing, respondents' asserted injury is a complete mismatch for the relief they seek. They claim to want greater loan forgiveness than the plan provides, but they ask this Court to hold that the HEROES Act doesn't authorize loan forgiveness at all. A win on that theory would mean that no one could get any HEROES Act relief, not Brown, who would get nothing for herself, not Taylor, who would lose $10,000, and not any of the millions of borrowers who need this critical relief. Respondents lack standing to seek that result. Parties cannot go to court to make themselves and everyone else worse off. To get around that problem, Brown and Taylor gesture at the idea that if the Secretary can't act under the HEROES Act, he might consider making an entirely different decision to grant debt relief under the Education Act. But on the merits, respondents are broadly attacking the whole idea of providing loan forgiveness under any executive action. They never explain why they think the Secretary could provide broader relief to even more borrowers under the Education Act. And in any event, this Court has never endorsed that kind of circuitous route to standing. A plaintiff who isn't injured by agency action can't establish standing by speculating that invalidating that that action might prompt the agency to take an entirely different action 
under a different statute. If the court reaches the merits, it should reject respondents' claim. They argue the plan is unlawful because the Secretary didn't use certain rulemaking procedures. But Congress specifically exempted the Secretary from following those procedures when he issues waivers and modifications under the HEROES Act. Respondents' procedural claim fails in light of that clear statutory exemption. I welcome the Court's questions. Are there any uh, instances in which you would have uh, procedural standing? So I think that if they wanted to argue that the Secretary should have reconsidered his decision under the HEROES Act to grant broader relief, then it's possible that they could have raised both a procedural claim and a substantive claim, because at that point their injury would be redressable. They would be saying that the Secretary drew arbitrary lines, that the plan should be expanded to include them and to provide relief to them, and that would be a very straightforward route to making the arguments if what they really want is loan forgiveness. But instead, their whole argument here is that the Secretary can't give them or anyone else relief under the HEROES Act. And when you look at it that way, there is no case that we've been able to find, and we've really tried to boil the oceans here, uh, that could plausibly support that theory of procedural injury. It would blow open the doors to asserting Article Three injury when you are not directly affected by an agency action. And by your own lights, you can't stand to benefit from any ruling on that agency action merely because you think that if you can block it, you could the, the agency might reach out and look for some other source of authority to regulate and make a new action. This action has nothing to do with their right if they thought it was permissible to seek relief under the Education Act, correct? That's correct. correct. It's, a, it's a totally different source of authority. If they want relief under the Education Act, there are provisions where they can file a petition for rulemaking and ask for that relief right now. And it's not as though these are mutually exclusive sources of authority. The Education Act is, is not directed to national emergencies. It's not uh, — it's an independent source of authority here, unlike the HEROES Act, which is the action they're challenging that's specifically focused on this agency, this national emergency situation. I understand your um, argument on standing, and I, I know this isn't directly on point, but when I saw it, it's sort of like the uh, equal protection cases, you know, where discrimination between men and women on the, the level of pensions and uh, the, the, the women, uh, the widows get more and the widowers get less and uh, the, the challenge is brought. And the argument was, well, if you win, we're going to take the excess away from the, the widows. So you're not going to get anything. So you don't have standing. Um, why is that case — I appreciate the way in which it's different, but why isn't that at least some authority on which they can rely? I, I think that the equal protection cases are fundamentally different because there your injury is your complaint of unequal treatment. And so whether you level up or level down, your injury is being redressed. You're no longer being subject to unequal treatment, and instead everyone is being subject to the same treatment. But this case stands in a very different posture because here their argument is our injury is we're not getting loan forgiveness. And the the relief they're seeking, which is a declaration that the HEROES Act doesn't authorize loan forgiveness in the first place, doesn't redress that injury one bit. It just carves it into stone. Right. But, I mean, without looking after the case, yes, you could lower it. Or, or raise it, but that's an uncertainty that had that we did not. We decided that that did not affect their right to bring the action because it may be changed in a particular way. And I suppose their argument would be that you know they are injured by not being uh, participating uh, in the program, and if the program is struck down in its current form, it may be changed in a particular way that would help them. 
So I think that there is, though, a, a complete disconnect between the claim of injury. And it's true that in the equal protection context, you don't know ex ante what the remedy is going to be. But the court has determined that doesn't affect standing because either way, no matter what remedy occurs based on the equal protection injury, it's going to fix the nature of the harm of providing unequal treatment. And here, the, the only certainty is that if they prevail on their claims, it's going to make it harder to provide them or anyone else with debt relief. Their suggestion here that the secretary wholly lacks this authority under the Heroes Act, and their assertion of arguments to support that claim that broadly attack this whole concept of loan forgiveness, I think, demonstrate that we're far afield from the equal protection case law. Can I just ask you, I'd, I'd understood them to be complaining about the procedures. A- am I completely off base here? You suggested that they're complaining about not getting enough loan forgiveness or something. Maybe I misheard you, but um, I thought they were trying to bring a procedural claim um, and that the reason why this was problematic was because the procedures that they are saying are lacking are actually under the other source of authority, that they — that if we looked at the source of authority that the Secretary used um, in this scenario, it doesn't guarantee them those procedures. So you can't really complain about not getting procedures in another sta- — under another statute that was not invoked in — in this situation. Am I wrong about this? No, and I understand the confusion because the the, the theory here um, is a little convoluted. And so let me try to unpack it. They are asserting a procedural injury. um, But what they're saying is we want an opportunity to comment on loan forgiveness so it will include us as well. Our underlying injury is that without having a chance to comment on the Secretary's use of authority under the HEROES Act, we didn't get a chance to advocate for us to be included in the plan. The problem with that procedural theory of harm is that by their own arguments in the case, the secretary couldn't make a different decision. He couldn't go back to the drawing board and think about it and decide, yes, I'm going to expand the plan under the HEROES Act to provide these borrowers with relief, too. So they aren't able to assert that kind of redressability for an asserted procedural injury under the HEROES Act. And that's because there aren't negotiated procedures under the HEROES Act. Right. The statutory text is very clear. So even if you were to get to it on the merits, they haven't actually been deprived of any procedural rights. The HEROES Act specifies that waivers and modifications issued under the HEROES Act are exempt from notice and comment. Uh, But I think because of the fundamental flaw with their theory of injury and the fact that it couldn't be redressed by their own arguments in this case, they've now brought up this Education Act idea. They haven't been deprived of any procedural rights under the Education Act. You know, procedural rights derive from specific agency decisions under agency authority. So it's not as though they have some procedural right in the ether to just comment on the concept of loan forgiveness writ large. Instead, under the HEROES Act, as we've just discussed, there isn't a notice and comment procedural right. And under the Education Act, no decision has been made. And so they haven't been deprived of any procedure associated with that So what they would need, I suppose, is certainty that if if we um, if we nullify the authority of the uh, secretary to do what it did in the Heroes Act, that there would necessarily be um, a loan forgiveness program under the HEA. Yes, and they can't make anything like that showing here. It's total speculation on their part to suggest that if the secretary is blocked from taking this action, maybe he'll look for a different source of authority and issue an entirely different program under that source of authority. And I think that that shows that their their theory is unduly speculative here. 
I think it's important to recognize as well why they're pressing this claim and the upshot of this theory. The reason they're asking the court to go down this road is so that they can effectively raise a substantive challenge to the HEROES Act. That was actually the only claim on which they prevailed below. The district court in this case rejected their assertions of procedural harm and instead went on to resolve a standalone substantive challenge to the Secretary's plan and said that it was unlawful under the HEROES Act. But they've now entirely abandoned that basis for prevailing below. They say that the district court was wrong to consider that. They're not defending that ruling. And it makes good sense because they obviously lack standing to maintain a substantive standalone challenge to the HEROES Act since that wouldn't do anything to redress their harm, but instead just ensure that they aren't going to get any debt relief. By raising this procedural argument, though, they're effectively asking for an opportunity to raise the very same substantive claim that they lack standing to pursue through the guise of a procedural challenge to the Act. And there is no apparent reason for the court to allow that kind of gambit and to take what is actually a substantive challenge based on a generalized grievance with how the executive is administering the law and alter the ordinary Article Three standards to allow a plaintiff to revisit that conclusion through a procedural mechanism. General, I, I appreciate your standing arguments, and um, they've been laid out very clearly here. Um, an interesting feature of this particular case, is, as you well know, is that the court entered a universal uh, decree. Um, we, we've chatted about this in prior cases. <laughs> we have indeed, Justice Gorsuch. And uh, I, I, I just wanted to give you another chance to talk about universal vacature with some of my friends here, <laughs> if you want it. And if you don't, that's fine. I will always take that opportunity. Um, We did argue below that the district court didn't have authority to enter universal vacatur in this case. And, you know, the the language that courts have relied upon in thinking that this is a permissible remedy under the APA. For for a handful of plaintiffs. Yes, yes, for, for two individual borrowers. Uh, is the set-aside language. But as we've explained, that language, which comes from Section 706 of the APA, if you look back and trace through uh, what Congress was doing when it enacted the APA, was not meant to be the remedial provision of the APA. Instead, that comes from Section 703, which tells you to either look at a special statutory review provision if one exists, and sometimes there are special statutory review provisions that say you can operate directly on the agency action at issue, Um, But in the absence of that, then it's the traditional equitable remedies that predated the APA. And there was nothing like this universal vacater remedy then, which would take you far beyond party-specific relief. I mean, talk about uh, ways in which courts can interfere with uh, uh, the processes of government through two individuals in one state who don't like the program can seek and obtain a universal relief, barring it for anybody anywhere. That's right. For millions of Americans, they've been able, on the basis of this claim, to hold up that critical relief. But, of course, if they actually had standing to do that, then, um, you know, they could bring such a claim. And I guess your position, which is not in this case, because we don't have a question presented about universal vacater, but your position is that, what, the court doesn't have the ability to Uh, issue an injunction that would prevent this plan from operating just because it was two people who brought the claim originally? Well, well, to be clear, we're not suggesting that injunctions would be off the table, but those two would have to be targeted to party-specific relief. And how would it be be targeted in in a plan such as this? 
So, for example, if, in fact, they had standing to pursue a procedural right, then the secretary would be enjoined to provide them the process that's due and to take into account um, their views in determining whether to expand eligibility under the program. But the, nothing about that, Justice Jackson, yes. would in any way call into question whether other people should get this relief. I understand, but if it, would you have the same reaction to universal vacater if the claim on the table was about their particular entitlement to getting let's say, more money under this plan. Um, would, you, w- would, would we be in a world, if you were right about universal vacater, in which every single borrower in the country would have to bring a lawsuit in order to vindicate a right that the court would say these two people have? Well, I think in a situation, it depends a little bit on which court you're talking about. Obviously, this court has the authority to resolve issues like that for the entire nation. So if a, if a question makes its way to this court, then it wouldn't be necessary to have follow-on suits. In the absence of that, then yes, our argument is you should provide party-specific relief, that the, the traditional concepts of remedial authority under Article Three were limited in that way, and that to instead allow single district courts throughout the nation to claim the power to put a critical policy on hold uh, is out of accord. So I recall that the last time we did this, every yeah, member of the D.C. Circuit. This is going to take a while. <laughs> <laughs> we can go into so, this, but. <laughs> so I'm just going to change the subject of General, I'm sorry. Justice Kagan, thank you. Many former, former members of the D.C. Circuit. <laughs> I'm going I'd back like to, to Okay. <laughs> I'd like to hear about the merits of this case. I want to come back to some of the claims that um, uh, both sets of respondents here um, have in common dealing with what we've called the arbitrary and capricious um, aspects of the case. And as I understand it, the memorandum really talks about two things. It talks about forbearance, and it talks about sort of economic slash COVID conditions. Um, um, uh, forbearance as a kind of separate thing that people who have been granted forbearance for long periods of time are more likely uh, to go into default or become delinquent in their payments. Um, and I guess I wonder, is that about COVID or is that just about something that happens when you excuse loan payments for a long period of time and how it is that that gets to be converted into an emergency COVID uh, rationale? And then on uh, uh, the economic considerations, and I think it was Justice Barrett who talked about this a little it seems, you know, a real mixture of COVID and non-COVID related things. Of course, this is how the economy works, that COVID interacts with other features of the economy to produce certain economic conditions. But again, I'm wondering whether, you know, there was more of an obligation on the part of the secretary to isolate how COVID uh, was affecting these borrowers. Of course, and I'll take each of those considerations in turn. Um, I'll start with your questions about forbearance. And I want to be really clear because I think my friends have confused the issue about this a little bit, that the Secretary wasn't finding that forbearance itself had caused the economic harm to borrowers or that it was the root cause of why they needed additional relief. Instead, the Secretary analyzed the historical data regarding forbearance as a data point in, in understanding that forbearance is not always a complete solution to the underlying economic harm 
harm caused by the national emergency. So here, there's no doubt that forbearance has provided very powerful and critical support to borrowers over the life of the COVID pandemic. But the secretary found that once forbearance policy lifts, millions and millions of borrowers are going to be worse off with respect to their ability to pay because of COVID. The forbearance policy hasn't fixed the underlying economic harm of the of the pandemic and the emergency. So to the extent that there's a bootstrapping concern here, I just want to push back forcefully on that. I think that the Secretary's decision memorandum makes clear that sometimes additional relief is necessary, not because of forbearance, but in spite of forbearance. Uh, to turn to your question about the various causes or influences of e- economic harm here, it's of course true that I can't make a representation that the harms the borrowers are facing are solely due to COVID-19. But I think that it would be an impossible burden to place on the secretary to suggest that he needs to isolate and identify just one economic factor or force that's causing that kind of distress for borrowers. You know, our, our, our economy is very complex and there are often multiple factors and forces at play. But the secretary here found, and I don't think that anyone could reasonably dispute that but for COVID, borrowers would not be in this situation of facing severe financial harms and the very real risk that they'll have to go into default or delinquency when they start repaying their student loans. So I think to the extent that there's concern here about how the standard could operate, at the very least, the Secretary made the requisite findings that, that these are financial harms that derive directly from and are a but for result of the COVID pandemic. Council, I'm, I'm sure I'm re- misreading the graphs. Uh, on, I'm looking at 247, 248. Didn't half the borrowers say they would not have any trouble paying their loans without regard to the forgiveness program? So it varies based on income bracket. And yes, it's true that, that in certain income brackets, the data I think reflected that, you know, a 51% of borrowers expected that they would be unable to pay their student loans. That wasn't the only sec- the only data the Secretary consulted, though. In those same studies that he referenced, there was uh, general data about levels of financial insecurity, and overwhelming majorities of borrowers expressed huge financial insecurity concerns about their ability to make ends meet going 10 years into the future. Now, I think one of the important things to recognize, again, as I had mentioned in the last argument, is that it's not necessary for the Secretary to make a fine that each and every borrower who receives relief under this plan would have necessarily gone into default or delinquency without it. No, of course not. But, I mean, it does kind of uh, factor into the consideration, particularly in a situation where you don't have notice and comment uh, proceedings, uh, that maybe, uh, again, that's something that a broader um, uh, representation of national interests in Congress would take into account rather than what the uh, uh, the secretary in a particular case, who's weighing a lot of options and considerations as well, would take into account. I mean, if more than half the people say they don't need this relief, extending relief to that breadth uh, certainly raises questions. So let me be clear that I think there is an avenue to address those kinds of questions with overbreadth. I I don't think that it's a function of statutory interpretation, though. That would be applications of the statute to particular fact patterns and whether the secretary could justify the lines he drew and the level of relief he decided was necessary. And here, Secretary Cardona explained that huge numbers of borrowers were going to go into default and delinquency, and it's not as though he could easily segregate and say, here are the 50 percent where I know for sure it will happen, and here are the 50 percent 
where it won't. If, if you could make that kind of determination, it might provide a basis to determine that he should have drawn different lines. But we don't have anything like that here. And I would just point again to the forbearance policy. You know, that has applied across the board to every single student loan borrower with a federally held loan for the past three years. Um, but I think that both secretaries acted entirely within the domain of the HEROES Act and recognizing that that kind of broad class-wide relief was necessary due to the particular exigencies of this emergency. Thank you. Um, since we're dealing uh, in, a, in a case with individual borrowers or would-be borrowers, I, I think it uh, appropriate to consider uh, some of the fairness arguments. Uh, you know, you have a, two situations. Both two kids come out of high school. They can't afford college. One takes a loan. Uh, and the other says, well, I'm going to, you know, try my hand at setting up a lawn care service. Um, uh, and he takes out a bank loan uh, for that. Uh, at the end of four years, we know statistically that the uh, person with the college degree is going to do significantly financially better over the course of uh, life than the person without. Um, and then along comes the government and tells that person, uh, you don't have to pay your loan. Uh, nobody's telling the uh, person who is trying to set up the lawn service business that he doesn't have to pay his loan. He still does, uh, even though uh, his tax dollars are going to support the forgiveness of the loan. Uh, for the uh, the college graduate who's now going to make a lot more than him uh, over the course of his lifetime. Now, it seems to me you may have views on fairness of that, and they don't count. I may have views on the fairness of that, and mine don't count. We'd like to usually leave situations of that sort when you're talking about spending the government's money, which is the taxpayer's money, to uh, the people in charge of the money, which is Congress. Now, why isn't that a factor that should enter into our consideration under the major questions doctrine again, where we look at things a little more strictly than we might otherwise when we're talking about statutory grants of authority to make sure that this is something that Congress would have contemplated? So my reaction to that, Mr. Chief Justice, is that Congress did take those kinds of considerations into account in specifically providing this authority to the Secretary. I think that the same kinds of arguments Well, it's just circular. You're, 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 it sort of you know, begs the question to say that, first, uh, I don't see any evidence that they took the, the, the person who's trying to start the lawn service because he can't afford college. I don't see any evidence that they took him into account. Um, but if that's what Congress would need to take into account and show, then it can't legislate. It can't provide the executive with preauthorization to take action into an emergency. Congress can't look ahead to the future and say, okay, in the year 2020, when an unprecedented global pandemic hits, we've decided that the lawn care professional should, you know, not benefit from this program, but the student So and yet you're relying on, the, on, you're relying on an interpretation of the statutory authority uh, to say that that's implementing Congress's intent to do that in a pandemic that they couldn't have foreseen. We do think, no, they would have foreseen the idea when they said uh, uh, modify or waive, that that would mean waiving the whole liability for 40 million Americans at a cost of half a trillion dollars, that they foreseen — they foresaw that enough to allow the Secretary to act without any express congressional authority, any more express congressional authority than the authority you rely on. Well, let me break it apart into two different components, because I think there's a first-order question of whether Congress could have foreseen the possibility of debt discharge at all. And I think the answer to that has to be yes. That was a well-established form of relief that you can provide to borrowers 
lives in, in hardship situations. As I previously mentioned, it's one of the core provisions in the Title IV. Uh, and Congress, in specifically enacting a statute that's aimed at this problem of not leaving borrowers worse off in reaction to a national emergency, clearly understood that using this so we're just going language, that, uh, Well, so that's I'm the not, first not, question. I recognize... I'm not... I'm not faulting no. you for repeating your answer, since I think I probably repeated my question. But you're just saying you know, it's the same argument about what modify and waive means. It is as a statutory matter on the categorical argument about debt discharge. Now, you have asked me several questions about the scope of this program, and, and let me try to be responsive to that. I recognize that this is a big program, but that's in direct reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic, which itself was a really big problem. There hasn't been a national emergency like this in the time that the HEROES Act has been on the books that's affected this many borrowers. And so I think it's not surprising to see, in response to this once-in-a-century pandemic, the kind of relief that the secretaries have offered here, the forbearance policy that has itself cost $150 billion and now this loan forgiveness program. To the extent that you have concerns about the scope and size of the program, though, I would say that if I can get you to agree with me, and maybe I can't, on this point that the categorical debt discharge argument doesn't work as a statutory matter, then I think the right place to look to house those concerns is an arbitrary and capricious review. We think here that the Secretary drew reasonable lines in crafting the scope of relief, but if you disagree or if you think he should have taken different interests into account, that would be a basis to reverse him on arbitrary and capricious grounds, not to distort the plain meaning of the HEROES Act. Thank you. Justice, Justice Alito? Well, the the Secretary did what he did, Uh, so presumably he had and has a view about the fairness question that the Chief Justice posed to you. What is that view? So the Secretary understood the statutory authority and mandate here to focus on whether this national emergency was going to leave borrowers worse off because of the pandemic. This is Congress deciding that the government should be in a position to provide benefits solely within the context of the student loan program. And I don't think there's any part of the statutory analysis. This is Congress's judgment that borrowers should be able to get relief if the Secretary makes these determinations with no suggestion that the relief should turn on or off based on the possible impacts on those outside the student loan program. Congress obviously knew when it was giving this authority to take care of borrowers who are otherwise going to be worse off that that might have otherwise impacts outside the program, but it wanted to make sure the secretary could provide relief to borrowers. Was the secretary legally obligated to do what he did? No, he's not required to provide relief under the HEROES Act. All right, so he decided to do what he did and must have had reasons for uh, for doing it, and some of them are, are on the record, some may not be. But the secretary, if you're right, then the secretary presumably could do more. And therefore, I think it's a fair question to say what is your client's view about the fairness question that some people have posed and that was re- reiterated for you by the, the Chief Justice. The view of the department is that this why is, it is warranted. Why is it fair? If it was just, if he didn't have to do it, why is it an answer to say that it was warranted? Maybe it was warranted, but why was it done? I guess you don't want to answer the question. 
It was fair because in the absence of this relief, it's undisputed that there are going to be millions of student loan borrowers who are not going to be able to pay their, their student loans, who yeah, are going to I, into and, default and, and delinquency. And, and, the, and the HEROES Act was specifically designed for this situation. This is Congress telling the Secretary, you don't have to let that happen. And when we have this kind of a pandemic uh, that requires this kind of relief, I think that the HEROES Act is operating right within its domain. Uh, I'll try one more time. Why was it fair to the people who didn't get arguably comparable relief. Now, it may be that their interests were uh, outweighed by the interests of those who were benefited, or they were somehow less deserving of uh, solicitude. But what is your answer to that question? My answer to that question is that Congress has already made the judgment that when there is a national emergency that affects borrowers in this way, the Secretary can provide relief. And you could make this critique of every prior exercise of HEROES Act authority. There, too, you could say, well, that only benefits the specific enumerated affected individuals, but it's Congress who defined those individuals, and the Secretary acted properly here in giving them relief. Justice Sotomayor? I take the bottom line answer to be everybody suffered in the pandemic, but different people got different benefits because they qualified under different programs, correct? That's right. There's been enormous relief there's efforts. Good, there's inherent unfairness in society because we're not a society of unlimited resources. Every law has people who encompass it or people outside it, correct? That's correct. And that's not an issue of fairness. It's an issue of what the law protects or doesn't. Yes. Justice Kagan? Um, I mean, Congress passed a statute that dealt with loan repayment for colleges, and it didn't pass a statute that dealt with loan repayment for lawn businesses. And so Congress made a choice, and that may have been the right choice or it may have been the wrong choice, but that's Congress's choice. And you're saying that the Secretary implemented his powers under Congress's choice, which gave him authority over loan repayment. It definitely did not give him authority over loans for Lawn care. That's correct. The Secretary would have no authority to act outside the student loan program. The HEROES Act is specifically designed only to empower the Secretary with respect to that portfolio. And maybe, as Justice Sotomayor said, Congress gave a different kind of authority to a different Secretary with respect to a different set of activities when an emergency struck. Is that correct? Yes. Justice Gorsuch? I just wanted to make sure I understood your position with respect to some of the gnarly language in this statute, which is uh, waive or modify uh, affected individuals to ensure they're not placed in a worse position financially because of the COVID crisis. You'd agree that doesn't authorize the Secretary to place persons in a better position than they were because of the COVID crisis. So I agree that the purpose is to ensure that they're not worse off, but I would disagree insofar as it's clear that he can provide class-wide relief. So if it turns out at the end of the day that some individuals are getting relief who it turns out wouldn't have needed it, Congress tolerated that and, in fact, encouraged the Secretary to err on the so side of over-inclusion. So you this statute is not just authorizing the Secretary to place people in the same position that they were prior to an emergency 
but to allow the secretary to place persons in a better position than they were prior to the emergency? No, I'm sorry. Let me try to clarify. His purpose has to be to ensure that they're not left worse off. But his effect but can be. if the effect is that some individuals in the class receive relief who wouldn't otherwise need it, that doesn't mean that his plan is invalid. But if I could respond to your well, question me, about better off, worse off. Let, let me just, I'm sorry, let me pose no. a different question. Um, so some persons can be better off is your position. I, I guess how many? is my next question, right? Um, Let's say two people in Missouri, okay. All right, they're better off, fine. But what if it's 90% of the class, just hypothetically? could, Could the secretary do that under this statute? So I think the right way to analyze that would be under arbitrary and capricious review, uh, because as I've just explained, we think the statute tolerates some overbreadth. And so at that point, you would want to look at the secretary's justification for his action. It sounds to me like that could be unreasonable, that maybe he wouldn't be able to justify that particular line drawing choice because it would be so extensive relief that isn't actually necessary. But one of the things you'd want to look at is whether there was a way to tailor it, whether there was a way to segregate the people who actually needed the relief or not. I understand that. And just in case you think this plan does that, Justice Gorsuch, no, no, no. It, it I, I'm, does not. I'm asking a hypothetical, and, and I understand your point. You direct us to arbitrary and capricious review. With respect to the fairness question that the Chief Justice posed, would that, would that would you direct us as well to maybe State Farm, for example, where the Secretary has to weigh not just the benefits to the persons uh, he's acting to favor, but also the cost to others? I think that that is a more natural way to analyze those issues. I should emphasize, because we're in this case, that these individual borrowers didn't raise a state farm argument. So they're not making these fairness allegations. I I hear you. But you'd agree that that would be a relevant consideration at some stage in a court's analysis of, 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 of the Secretary's action. I don't think that the Secretary could be faulted for not considering the interests of non-student loan borrowers, because I don't think that's one of the relevant interests that Congress expected him to take into account under this authority. As we've been discussing laws all the time— It's just irrelevant. Yes. I think that that his charge under the HEROES Act is to determine whether student loan borrowers need this relief. I appreciate—thank you. That's clarifying. Thank you. Justice Kavanaugh? So pick up on the Chief Justice's and Justice Alito's questions. If we're thinking about how to interpret the statute— and we're trying to think about the context of the statute in interpreting it. The word wave in isolation, one thing, the word, but it doesn't use cancellation, so that cuts the other way. I take your response to that. But then you're thinking about contextually how it all works. It fits together the fact that there will be um, winners and losers, big winners and big losers, uh, relatively speaking, if the executive branch has this kind of authority, uh, people who didn't go to college, uh, as the Chief Justice said, or people who had just pay, who had paid off their loans, who say uh, what they did to pay off their loans and they're getting no relief uh, because of the timing of the situation. Um, and if Congress were doing this, Congress could and would, no doubt, try to would hear about all that and factor all that in in a way that a secretary could not, especially without notice and comment. Uh, Should any of that factor into how we think about whether to give a broad reading to WAVE or a narrower reading to WAVE, given the context? 
No, I don't think that that should factor into how to interpret the statute. Um, I, I think instead, as this Court usually does, it needs to consider that text on its own terms. And I don't see any way to read the provision to waive or modify any Title IV provision to mean, but only do it a little bit, only in response to minor emergencies. It would actually be perverse to suggest that when there's a big emergency that might necessitate broader relief, the Secretary is more disabled from acting. Instead, that's the language in the statute that's meant to empower the Secretary and to ensure that he has whatever tools are necessary to fulfill the statutory purpose to ensure that borrowers are not left worse off. With respect to these concerns about whether there's room to take into account other interests beyond student loan borrowers, there are avenues to go to Congress for additional relief to implement other programs. There's been unprecedented levels of COVID pandemic aid, as I mentioned. And I think to suggest that the secretary here should have told borrowers who he had determined were at massive risk of default and delinquency in record numbers that he wasn't going to use the authority under the HEROES Act that's tailor-made to prevent that result would have been an an irresponsible thing to do. So again, I think that this really comes down to Congress's judgment that there should be authority to provide the benefit within the context of this program. Obviously, there are additional authorities and benefits that can be provided under other programs. Separate question, Uh, the student loan issue is a major public policy issue without regard to COVID to begin with, uh, obviously, and how to uh, deal with that and the burdens it's imposing on people after they get out of college who have massive student loans to pay back, Uh, obviously a huge public policy issue that was being considered before COVID. Should that factor in to how we think about this? In other words, this is something that um, was on the table being discussed, being debated, and then all of a sudden it's this public policy idea is um, uh, attached uh, that was being proposed and pursued before the uh, pandemics attached to pandemic legislation matter at all? I think that it's really hard to think about how that should work as a matter of statutory interpretation and specifically what kind of burden this court would be putting on Congress if it goes down that road. If you put yourself back in the shoes of the 2003 Congress, it couldn't necessarily anticipate exactly what would be the subjects of political discussion and debate at the time that the COVID national emergency pandemic hit. And so going down the road of suggesting the meaning of the statute could change or should be interpreted in in an atextual way because of current conditions, I think, would basically disable Congress from being able to take the kind of action we have here of trying to ensure that the executive can act quickly with preauthorization in an emergency to forestall massive student loan default. Okay. Uh, last question. I uh, can't resist on Justice Gorsuch's earlier <laughs> questions. Um, uh, if if uh, it were party-specific relief and it went up to the Court of Appeals and, the Court of, and you had sought an emergency uh, injunction in the Court of Appeals and the Court of Appeals ruled against uh, the government on that. Would you then follow that in that circuit or not? I think as a practical matter, we generally do follow that in the circuit. I want to be careful here because I... You might not in the future. <laughs> well, you, you know, can admit it. <laughs> our general practice is yes, we, we treat yeah. it as binding within the relevant circuit. But again, the concern here is that actually it's it, imposing on us an obligation to follow it throughout the nation. And if you came up to this court in an emergency application and we said you did not have a likelihood of success, I think you said earlier you would follow that. Why would you follow that? We recognize that this court has authority to resolve these issues for the nation. Even though there are only two parties in the case, you would say 
we're going to follow it for everyone else and not force every other affected individual to come to court? Do you think every future administration will have that same approach? Well, I think that they would likewise understand that even if the relief didn't formally extend beyond the parties in the case, obviously the precedential force of this Court's decisions in a given area rule for the nation. Thank you. Justice Barrett? I will ask you about universal vacatur. Um, I just want to ask you one thing about the statutory language on waive or modify that I wonder whether it's an indication of the scope of waive or modify. So the Secretary has authority to waive or modify to ensure that affected individuals are not placed in a worse position financially in relation to that financial assistance, so in relation to their debt. So you agree, right, that we're not talking about a worse financial position generally. We're just talking about in relationship to the debt. That's correct. That too often collapse, obviously, because if you are distressed financially, it might mean that you're having trouble paying your mortgage or paying your rent, buying your groceries, and paying your debt. But yes, the the function of the HEROES Act focuses on your position with respect to your ability to repay your student loans. So it seems to me that that language in relation to that financial assistance suggests that the relationship would continue. But the waiver or modification here severed the relationship to the debt so that it no longer exists. So why would that be consistent? I mean, doesn't the statutory language in relation to that financial assistance presuppose an ongoing relationship that might be modified but not completely ended? No, I think that that would be reading in limitations that can't be gleaned from the text. Um, What we understand the statute to be focusing on, and specifically looking at the subparagraph here that justified this act, making sure that student loan borrowers are not worse off with respect to their loans, uh, that functions as a matter of their probability of being able to actually make their payments. And this actually relates to some of the questions that Justice Gorsuch was asking about better off, worse off. You know, imagine a student loan borrower, for example, who before the pandemic had her affair entirely in order, she had a 0% chance of defaulting on that debt. But then COVID hit, her life has been disrupted, her job was disrupted, inflation is at record levels, she's having trouble making ends meet, and now she has a much higher likelihood of, of not being able to pay her student loans. In that situation, HEROES Act relief, if it were to operate even to completely eliminate her debt so she doesn't have an ongoing relationship with it, it would just restore her to her pre-pandemic relation insofar as her risk of default and and delinquency. She was 0% before, and now she'll be 0% after. And so it doesn't inherently make her better off within the meaning of the statute. Thank you. Justice Jackson? I just wanted to quickly um, circle back to the fairness point. I guess I'm um, wondering whether or not the same fairness issue would arise with respect to any federal benefit program. So I'm thinking about um, the fact that as a result of COVID, we had massive infusions of uh, money given to various companies, organizations, um, clearly authorized because Congress said do it. I'm wondering whether that would be unfair to people who didn't own a company or somebody who didn't have, um, you know, a, a, a nonprofit and wasn't getting that money. I just don't know how far we can go with this notion of to the extent that the government is providing Uh, much-needed assistance to people in an emergency, it's going to be unfair to those who don't get the same benefit. Yes, that's exactly right. And what I would say is that is inherently 
an aspect of what Congress authorized in the HEROES Act as well. It specifically thought about this situation, what to do about student loan borrowers who are impacted by a national emergency, who might then end up in a worse position with respect to their ability to repay. And Congress made the judgment, you can give them relief. And with any benefits program, there are going to be others outside the context of that particular program who aren't getting the benefit. But I don't see how that could possibly provide a basis to just say that you're paralyzed in doing what Congress intended to ensure that the class they were focused on gets the relief they need. Thank you, General. Mr. Connolly? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case turns on the same issue as Nebraska versus Biden, whether the HEROES Act authorizes the debt forgiveness program. It does not, as this Court has already heard. I'd like to focus here on three issues specific to this case. First, the HEROES Act is the Secretary's only excuse for not adopting the program through negotiated rulemaking and notice and comment. If that act does not apply, there is no dispute that the program is procedurally improper. Second, on standing, the government makes one argument, that if respondents prevail, the Secretary won't provide debt forgiveness to them under the HEROES Act. But that isn't the proper inquiry. Respondents need only show that there is some possibility that the relief they seek will prompt the Secretary to forgive their debts. On that question, there is no debate. Debt forgiveness is a top priority of this administration. The parties agree that the Secretary can forgive debts under the Higher Education Act, and the Secretary has never denied that he may follow the proper procedures and forgive respondents' debts after his current program is declared unlawful. Finally, on the merits, Congress did not authorize the Secretary to create a $400 billion debt forgiveness program behind closed doors with no public involvement. The whole point of negotiated rulemaking and notice and comment is that the individuals most affected by student loan regulations, like the respondents, must have a meaningful voice in the regulatory process. But here, uh, the respondents were deprived of their procedural rights and their finances suffered. Brown got nothing and Taylor received only $10,000, even though high-income individuals making more than five times as much got $20,000. The law requires that the Secretary give respondents an opportunity to be heard. The judgment below should be affirmed. Uh, Mr. Connolly, uh, has this Court ever held that uh, uh, the notice and comment provisions of the APA can establish uh, are enough for standing uh, in, in a case like this? Yeah, I, w- I would point to uh, Summers. In Summers, uh, this court held that an environmental organization had standing to challenge the Forest Service's approval of the Burnt Ridge Project, and because the Forest Service approved that without going through notice and comment. And that environmental organization had standing because there was some possibility that if they went through the proper process, that the Forest Service would change its mind and wouldn't approve the Burnt Ridge Project. And I think it's the same thing here. If the Secretary goes through the proper process, there is some and does negotiated rulemaking and notice and comment, there is some possibility that he will change his mind and forgive our debts. Were the um, procedures in Summers applied in Summers? Were they implied? I think it was — No, applied. Oh, applied. Uh, in, in that case, yes, the, the court said the court found um, it, it was drawing a distinction between uh, 
why they would have had standing in one place and wouldn't have in another. And the reason that the group ultimately didn't have standing is because they had settled it. But the court said that if, if Burnt Ridge had still been on the table, that they would have had standing. Doesn't your theory of injury rely on the assumption that uh, if the HEROES Act isn't there or if there's a problem with the HEROES Act, the administration would necessarily have done the same thing under the HEA? No, I don't think so. In in fact, I think the program will look quite different once it does go through negotiated rulemaking and notice and comment. I guess I'm asking you, you seem to be assuming that (coughs) if you get the relief of invalidation of the action under the HEROES Act, that the administration would necessarily uh, move forward because you said it was a top priority of this administration, that they would necessarily do the same thing or a similar thing, meaning provide debt relief to people under the other legal uh, avenue. And I, I mean, I can imagine a world, if you think of a hypothetical, uh, in which the secretary believes that they that, that the department only has authority under the HEROES Act. Here we are in the midst of a pandemic. The intention of the department is to provide this relief in the context of the emergency, and that if we don't have an emergency, and then if we're not um, in this circumstance and we don't see the HEROES Act there, then they would not move forward. So I think you kind of have to convince us that the administration would have provided this sort of debt relief under the authority you point to that you say has the procedures that were not provided. Uh, two responses. I think the best evidence for this is the nature of the program. The program applies to 95 percent of all borrowers. It's not remotely tailored to individuals who are suffering from the pandemic. And the reason is because this is a program that's just designed to help people who are in need of debt relief. And on the authority point, the parties are in in agreement that they have the power to do this under under the uh, HEA. And the Secretary has never come up here and and denied that they won't do — go through the exact same process, which they should have done in the first place, once this program is declared Except my biggest problem is you've shown me nothing to suggest that if they have to or will go under HEA, that they're going to deprive you of due process. They're going to let you be heard. What Justice Jackson was getting to is you could be heard and not accept it. I mean, your position could be rejected. Then we'd have to look at that program and decide if that program fits the HEA requirements um, and the arbitrary and capricious standard. But there is no injury that you're suffering unless you get a speculative new plan that goes into effect. You have no proof that if a speculative new plan does arise under the HEA, that you're going to be deprived of notice and comment. And you certainly can't say if they rule against that interest and you've had notice and an opportunity to be heard, that it was arbitrary and capricious. So I'm at a loss as to how you have standing because there is no notice and procedure required under the HEROES Act. The only way you can win is if you strike down this program completely, and that means that you don't get an opportunity to be heard, but nobody else does either. The Secretary created a $400 billion debt forgiveness program. Now, you're, Under- you're arguing what the state's arguing. I'm asking about you. 
Sure. You as a student, once the, the HEROES Act, your $10,000 student yeah. is going to get nothing. He's not going to get 20000 You strike it down, he gets nothing. Neither does your person who wants something. This is so totally illogical to me that you come into court to say, I want more. I'm going to file a suit to get more, but I know I'm going to get nothing. So the secretary created a, a, a massive debt forgiveness program, and he says that he's doing it one time and one time only. He said this in his brief, in his declarations, on its website. And in the reply brief, he said he took costs into account. And so if we miss this shot, we will never have another opportunity to get No, you can uh, – I don't know if that hurts you, you or helps you. I mean, that's, <laughs> it seems to hurt you to, sit, to suggest that. I thought your argument was if we strike down this program – then we know the secretary is going to try again under the HEA, and that's the relief that we are seeking, the procedures that exist under that program. So if he's done, if we strike it down, isn't Justice Sotomayor right that you're in a much worse position by bringing this lawsuit? He's, we are in a, if he completes the program, but we are asking, we are trying to stop this program so that it can go through the proper process so that we have an opportunity to comment and urge the secretary to forgive our debts. Right now, Ms. Brown has $17,000 in student loan debts, and she's not getting a dime of debt forgiveness. And if this had gone through the proper process, there's some possibility that we would have had our debts forgiven. And if, if, in Lujan, what Lujan talks about is this is why procedural rights are special. Because the agency can always come in and say, you know what, we would have done the exact same thing even if we, you would have had that process. Y- your, your injuries aren't redressable. They're speculative. But that's why procedural rights are, are special. Do you rely um, — uh, to what extent do you rely on the fact that your clients uh, include an existing student loan borrower? Um, uh, and that you have a little different than one that is not. In other words, it's not speculative in the question of how would that person be remedied, but it is another borrower. You're asking for notice and comment, and during that period, if it's granted, uh, that would uh, — it it would entitle you to raise, you know, why the limit, whatever the credit limit is, that should should be changed. Is that — I mean, I think your challenge is is to — make that sufficiently uh, particularized and non-speculative. I mean, the, the problem with standing jurisprudence for something that looks for something concrete and particularized, it's also very academic. You know, a dollar of injury uh, and you're in, uh, hundreds of millions that they can't trace directly to the agency action and, and you're not. So what is it that makes the interest of your client who has a, what, $17,000 loan? Uh, how is that sufficiently concrete and particularized in the context of something that the government would address if it can't do what it's doing now? Sure. So she — I think it is critical that we're, we're here representing borrowers. She has uh, student loan debt, and it's not being repaid, and that those are concrete interests at stake. So this is not someone off the street who is upset that his or her taxes are going to go up. That, that there's no question that would be a that wouldn't be a that'd be a generalized grievance. But here, if you look at the scope and the purpose of the program, it's to help student loan borrowers. But instead of doing this in negotiated rulemaking and notice and comment, they they did they carved up the lines and they did it all in secret. I, I'd point the court to page 31 of uh, the government's reply brief. 
In that, on that page, the, the government said um, that it had extensive discussions with banks and ultimately decided not to forgive FFEL loans. That's the to- type of thing that should be happening on well, the Mr. public Mr. Connolly, record. aren't you really fighting Congress on this one? The HEROES Act specifically says no notice and comment, no negotiated rulemaking. Specifically says there's going to be an emergency. So we're waiving those procedural requirements. So, you know, you might think that Congress made a wrong call there. But that's Congress's call. Because when, when Congress wrote the HEROES Act, the waivers and modifications have to actually be authorized by the Act. You can't just label something a waiver or a modification and skip through negotiated rulemaking and notice and comment. Uh, right there, subsection D, it says the negotiated rulemaking requirements shall not apply to the waivers and modifications authorized or required by the Act. It doesn't say uh, anything that the Secretary labels a waiver or modification is authorized by the, or required by the Act. And so we recognize that, that um, Congress did create an exception, but the waivers and modifications actually have to apply. They have to actually be authorized by the HEROES Act. Mr. Connolly, what are the limits of your theory? Could someone who finished paying their loans off, you know, right last year sue because they were disappointed that they weren't included for reimbursement? No, I don't think so, because there's, there's no mechanism by which the Department of Education can, can, can write those borrowers a check. And so their injuries are not redressable. Here, there is a mechanism under which the secretary can forgive Ms. Brown's debts, forgive Mr. Taylor's debts, and that's the difference. What about the chief justice's lawn, lawn care person who doesn't go to college, starts a lawn care business, but as the chief said, this person has some fairness concerns and feels like this shouldn't have happened and, and kind of level up or level down and wants to level down? Sure. Again, the secretary or the secretary of education has no power to uh, give any money to that uh, individual or do anything like that. And so, there, even if he could come up with a concrete interest, it couldn't be redressable. Could have persuaded him not to do it. Would be I, I, I take it with the fairness concern and the hypothetical the chief posed you. I think it would have been to say, well, this isn't fair. You're not doing this for me, so you shouldn't have done it for anyone. But you're not taking the position that that would be a, no. He would not fact. because you you have to have you have to have concrete interests has to be particularized can't be abstract and so so it's not just the getting shut out of notice and comment in correct other words. correct these individuals have concrete interests there was a four hundred billion dollar debt forgiveness program that was created and the respondents have debts and they're not being forgiven and if it had gone through the proper process. Uh, negotiated rulemaking and notice and comment, we could have argued that our debt should be forgiven, too. The suggestion is not that the Secretary of Education should uh, forgive, on behalf of different banks, loans to lawn service companies. It's that that is a consideration of other Americans in a comparable situation who will not get that sort of relief that maybe the Secretary should have taken into account. And that if we had notice and comment rulemaking, uh, that maybe that would be a consideration that would come forth. Or maybe if Congress were involved in this expenditure of $500 billion, that that might be something that they could consider. Right. And and I would also point to negotiated negotiated rulemaking statute. This is a unique statute. Um, The Congress uh, said specifically that it wanted all of the individuals who are affected by the Title IV loan process, individ, uh, student loan borrowers, universities, everyone, it wants them to be involved in the process. 
and it strengthened those requirements in 1998. And so the idea, I think, that right after doing that, it really strengthening negotiated rulemaking, that Congress said, yeah, you can create a $400 billion program on your own in secret without any public involvement, it just doesn't, it, it just doesn't seem uh, possible. What is, what is the limiting principle? I mean, there are many, many programs uh, out there uh, that people say, well, I ought to, you know, I ought to be covered by that, and I wasn't. Uh, and, and we certainly don't allow everybody to come in and say, just because I would have a right to comment uh, uh, if, this, if this law were struck down, uh, I therefore have a right to uh, bring, a, bring a suit. Uh, I mean, how is this? I understand uh, maybe you have the one client that has a student loan and one that doesn't, right? Right. Well, there's a clear difference between those two situations, isn't there? Sorry, they both have they both have student loan debts right now. Brown has seventeen thousand, and Taylor has thirty five thousand dollars. Okay. Well, well, what principle should we look at to try to limit the universe of people who can? Otherwise, you get people who are interested in any kind of law at all. And I'd have something to say that the secretary might find of interest in notice and comment, and so I should be able to sue to block what's there now. I I think you have to look at the, the scope and the purpose of the agency action. Was the individual's concrete interest at stake? If they're doing something uh, that has no relation to what you're complaining about, your concrete interest, then it's coming out of left field, then that person isn't going to have standing. Um, Or if there's no possibility that the secretary is going to give you relief because we're dealing with topic A and you're coming in here on topic B, then that person isn't going to have standing. But here we have — there is no dispute. The secretary is trying to give release to student loan borrowers. That's the nature and the the scope and the purpose of this act. And instead of figuring out, okay, uh, among this universe of student loan borrowers, who's going to get what, how much, instead of doing that on the public record, they did it in secret first. So for purposes of standing, as distinct as to who can comment, because anyone can comment, uh, for standing purposes, it has to be someone who was in the class of people who could have been afforded relief. Is that... Yeah, I, I think that's a fair way to put it. You have to have you have to have concrete interests. It has to be particularized, and that's and, and that's what we have here. I think. And if I understand your your theory, it's once you strike down this program, then the secretary just uses authority under the HEA. Is that the nature of your theory, which would include notice and comment and negotiated rulemaking? The HEA. Uh, uh, gives the secretary but, the But the power. theory is that the secretary will just switch to another statute. Well, I think that's focusing um, — you look at the agency action. You look at the facts on the ground of what's actually happening. But you're striking down this program. That's the whole point of your being there. You're trying to — this program is not um, — right? You have yeah. to strike down this program to get any possibility of yeah. notice and comment under another statute, Right. Right. So you have to strike down this program, then you go under another statute, and where you do get notice and comment. That's the theory. That is, that is correct. The HEA gives uh, us a right. To, they have to go through negotiated rulemaking and notice. Right. And I mean, usually when we give standing for procedural uh, violations, we're talking about procedural violations within a particular program, right? We're not talking about, you know, if you have a problem with the procedures relating to one program — you can just come in and strike down the program so that you're in another statute entirely. Well, 
I don't think it's right to look at to focus on the the, the statute that they're using as as an excuse. When you look at what we well, look it's at, the statute they acted under. Well, and I, it's a statute that says you don't have to use notice and comment. Well, I think we focus on the agency action at issue. So in Lujan, the, the Lujan footnote seven, the agency is proving a dam. Uh, in summers, the agency is tearing down a forest. Here, the agency is is doing debt forgiveness. I think you look at the action. Suppose, I would point to. Go ahead. Suppose there were no HEA. Suppose it was this statute or nothing. Would you then say you still have standing because once you strike down this this uh, uh, this this program, uh, you know. Uh, uh, the secretary would go back to Congress and get a new statute? No, I don't think so. At that point, there would be no possibility that he would go back and, and give us Well, relief. yes, there is a possibility. He goes back to Congress and says, this is terrible. Nobody can get loan forgiveness, so I'll go back and get a new statute. That, would, that relief would be coming from Congress. The, 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 the way you look at the redressability is whether there's some possibility that the agency will reconsider its decision uh, will reconsider its decision. And here, the decision was the debt forgiveness program. What? And so, Keep going. Sorry. And so you look, you, look at the, you look at the agency action. And the, the, one, the, the other line of cases I would point to is, is the structural separation of powers cases. In those cases, you focus on the agency action. You don't look to see whether the, act, uh, the actions or the acts um, restrictions on removal are injuring the individual. You look at whether the agency's actions are, in, are injuring the individual. And I think it's the same thing here. What's your best case, if you have one, for your answer to Justice Kagan's question about you going under a different statute? Are you aware of such a case? The, the I guess a, a few responses. First, I would go back to the ones I just mentioned, Lujan and Summers. They're, none, of, none of those cases focused on the statute at issue. They looked at the action. Um, Lujan footnote 7, the, da- the dam example. An individual who is living next to a dam, when they approve that dam without going through the proper process, that individual has a procedural right to challenge that. When the agency approves the dam, they're approving it under the Federal Power Act. When the individual is going to get relief, he's getting it under the Endangered Species Act. And I think what that footnote shows and what that example shows is that the statute really doesn't matter what they're acting under. What matters is the agency action. Well, well, let me ask you about the evidence. What what evidence do you need as the plaintiff coming in claiming standing that the agency um, would have proceeded under this other statute? Because it's not a world in which, you know, they overlap so entirely that if we take one away, they're automatically in the world of HEA. They would have to actually elect to operate in that other world. And so this goes back to my very first question to you, which was about, don't we ha- aren't you relying on the assumption that if the HEROES Act falls, this agency or this, this administration would pursue the same course of action under this other statute? Sure. A a few responses. First, if you look at the nature of the action, it is applying to 95 percent of all borrowers. It's not remotely tailored. Do you have evidence that they've said, even pursuant to this litigation, for example, that if the Supreme Court strikes this down, we're going to pursue the same relief under the HEA? I'm asking about the like. What do you? Is it enough for you just to identify another path? Don't you have to at least have some evidence that the administration is going to move in that direction? So, yeah, so again, I would point to the, the nature of the rule, that it's broad-based, it's not, it's not tied to the pandemic. The second thing I would point to is that there's all sorts of evidence. Um, when, uh, uh, 
during the cam- during the campaign, they were talking about doing broad-based debt relief. It wasn't related to the pandemic. Uh, Senator Warren and others passed resolutions urging the secretary to use the Higher Education Act to pass debt forgiveness. Uh, scholars have written about this, and the yet, the, and yet, the secretary chose this path. So, I guess I'm just trying to say: Do we have something from the secretary saying that? Um, you know, we're definitely doing this under all circumstances, and we're, we pick the HEA if the HEROES Act falls. I think that would be a very high burden for us to meet. It, because it, if you look again at uh, footnote 7 of Lujan, when it's talking about why procedural rights are special, what it's saying is that if, if the burden is on the plaintiff to come back and say, you know, my comments are going to be amazing, they're going to do this, they're going to change their mind, procedural rights are going to, are going to be useless. They can always come back and say, you no, know, but that's change your mind thing. within the context of a particular program. That's that. This is Justice Kagan's point. I mean, yes, redressability gets relaxed when we're in the world in which procedural rights would have otherwise existed, and you don't have to, as a plaintiff, show that they would have made a different ultimate determination if they'd heard your comments. We understand that. But what you're suggesting is that same principle of redressability applies to whether or not they would shift to an entirely different legal base of authority to pursue this program. And I've never seen that before. And, again, I, I think this exact this, — this program, they could have, they could have cited uh, Section uh, 1082 of the HEA to go under it. They, they believe they can do it. They've said it in their brief that they can do it. The reason they I, — I, I, my guess is the reason why they didn't do that is because they would have had to go under negotiated rulemaking and notice and comment. And if you look at the, the — the, the breadth of this program, it's not, about the, it's not about helping people who are uniquely suffering from the pandemic. It's helping 95 percent of all borrowers, and, except, from, except for the respondents here. And so I think when you look at the nature of the, of the program at issue, um, plus the campaign statements, uh, plus the fact that they've never gotten up here and, and denied it, you put all that together, and I think we have a strong, at a minimum, some possibility that they're going to get up when this program is declared unlawful and they go back to the drawing board, I don't think they're going to fold up shop. I think they're going to say, well, how about the HEA? What's your theory, if any, and maybe I should be asking the other side this, but your theory for why they didn't want notice and comment? I think because it's it's a it's a pro, long, the negotiated rulemaking process and the notice and comment process. I mean, it's a long process, and agencies probably would uh, most agencies would prefer not to have to do that. And this is an emergency, and emergency statutes typically do not have notice and comments, do they? If this were authorized by the Heroes Act, then they could have gone under it, but it's not. They could have done the good cause exception, though, right? They could have tried to, but they didn't, and, and probably because it's not an actual emergency to have to forego notice and comment and negotiated rulemaking. Thank you, Counsel. Oh, wait. Uh, yeah. uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off too quickly. I'm sorry. Justice Thomas, do you have anything? Justice Alito? Justice Kavanaugh? No. Justice Barrett? The same? Thank you. Thank you very much. General Prelogger. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, I want to begin with standing again. My friend was asked several times whether he has a case to support this novel theory of standing. He referred to Lujan and Summers. Uh, Those cases don't support the theory he's advancing here. In every case where there has been an asserted procedural injury, the plaintiff 
was asking the, the, for the agency to reconsider its decision under the very statutory authority at issue. He's not been able to identify any precedent where instead a plaintiff is able to say, I acknowledge I can't get any relief under the particular agency action at issue. Instead, I'm hoping for some kind of bank shot where if I can hold up the agency in this one area, maybe they'll take a different action under a different statute that will down the road provide me some kind of benefit. And that would be an extraordinary expansion of Article Three injury in the context of procedural injuries in particular. He was asked whether he had a limiting principle, and he suggested, well, you have to have a general interest or stake in the subject matter of the dispute. But I don't see how that limits it at all. Go back to the cases he cited, which involved environmental plaintiffs, and imagine a scenario where you have an environmental plaintiff who is interested in pollution, and the agency has decided to regulate water pollution. Now, that plaintiff doesn't actually have a stake in water pollution, isn't harmed by it, but the plaintiff thinks that if it can hold up the agency from regulating water pollution, maybe the next priority or goal will be to go after air pollution. I think that if a plaintiff came to court and pressed that kind of claim, it would be clear that it is far too attenuated and can't possibly supply a basis to allow this universe of plaintiffs to newly assert these kinds of procedural injuries or substantive injuries with respect to agency decisions that have not been made. He said that they have a concrete interest in trying to have their debts forgiven. If that were their interest, there were several straightforward mechanisms to try to vindicate it here. They could have challenged this plan as being arbitrary and capricious on substantive grounds to say you should expand the plan to include us. Or if for some reason they really wanted to have this under the Education Act, they could have gone to the secretary and filed a petition for rulemaking and said give us relief under the Education Act. But instead, their argument here is that the secretary can't provide debt relief. That is a really anomalous way to try to vindicate an interest that they claim they have in loan forgiveness. I've been thinking of it effectively as this Rube Goldberg theory of standing, where instead of taking the most direct route, you've set up this complicated route to try to get what you want, all in service of being able to smuggle in a substantive challenge to the HEROES Act for borrowers who are not hurt one bit by the Secretary's decision to grant relief under that act. Finally, I want to respond to his suggestion that instead the Secretary should have proceeded under the Higher Education Act here. I would think that at the very least, if they were going to ask this court to recognize a cognizable Article Three injury on that basis, it would be incumbent on them to explain their wholly unexplained position of why they think the Secretary could do this under the Higher Education Act. My friend has suggested that that's what this program was actually designed to do, but this is a pandemic-related program. It specifically focuses on on the national emergency circumstances that have had profound financial effects on student loan borrowers, and the Secretary acted to try to mitigate those financial harms from COVID. That's what the HEROES Act was made for. It is a perfect fit for this kind of circumstance, and it explains why the Secretary chose to provide this relief to those who were harmed by COVID, just as the forbearance policy was put into place right at the start of the pandemic, similarly on those COVID concerns. And then finally, I I know that we have had hours today on the legal issues in this case, but I do want to step back for a moment and focus on the stakes of this case for the tens of millions of student loan borrowers in this country who have had devastating financial impacts based on this unprecedented pandemic. 
Over the past three years, they have benefited from the critical relief of the forbearance policy. That's an unprecedented form of relief, but it was very much needed in this circumstance to ensure that we did not see a deluge of default and delinquency on student loan debt. And it's undisputed, my friends have not disputed, that when that forbearance policy ends, and it can't continue indefinitely, Once it ends, there are going to be millions of borrowers who are in a worse position because of COVID with respect to their ability to repay their loans. 90% of the borrowers covered by this plan make less than $75,000 a year. And the Secretary documented the extreme impacts that COVID had had on their financial affairs. Already, 26 million people have applied for this relief, and 16 million people have been approved to receive it. For those Americans, this is a critical lifeline to ensure that they are not subject to the severe negative consequences of delinquency and default on student loan debt. And the relief for these Americans has been held up by two student loan borrowers who don't even have standing and whose claims fail on the merits. So we'd urge you to reject their claims. Thank you, General. Mr. Connolly, the case is submitted.